0: This episode is brought to you by Lightpoint, of which I'm the principal engineer. Lightpoint provides the collision reconstruction community with data and education to facilitate and elevate analyses. Our most popular product is our exemplar vehicle point clouds. If you've ever needed to track down an exemplar, you know it takes hours of searching for the perfect model, awkward conversations with dealers, and usually some cash to grease the wheels. Then back at the office, it takes a couple more hours to stitch and clean the data, and that eats up manpower and adds a lot to the bottom line of your invoice. Save yourself the headache so you can spend more time on what really matters, the analysis. Lightpoint has already measured most vehicles with a top-of-the-line scanner, like his RTC360, so no one in the community has to do it again. The exemplar Point Cloud is delivered in PTS format, includes the interior, and is fully cleaned and ready to drop into your favorite programs, such as Cloud 3DS Max, Rhino, Virtual Crash, PC Crash, among others. Head over to lightpointdata.com slash driven to check out the database and receive 15% off your first order. That's lightpointdata.com slash driven. All right, my guest today is Mark Crouch. Uh, Mark is head of investigations at FCIR, a collision investigation and reconstruction firm in South Croydon, England. Uh, being a Yankee, I, I think that's essentially London. Uh, prior to forming FCIR, Mark worked for the Metropolitan Police in London as a forensic collision investigator for eight years, where he conducted hundreds of traffic collision investigations. He holds a master's degree in applied physics from the University of London, and his work in the field of collision investigation has led him to achieving chartered physicist status from the Institute of Physics and also a chartered forensic practitioner. He is a member of the Institute of Traffic Accident Investigators and was recently elected as the organization's chairman. In 2017, Mark authored an in-depth book Video Analysis in Collision Reconstruction with colleague Stephen Cash, and has recently released its second edition. From across the pond, uh, thanks for taking the time to sit down today, Mark, and uh, have a good conversation with with a Yankee like me. And I think we'll start a little bit with that, because in speaking with some colleagues and prepping for this conversation, like we were talking about before we started recording, it seems like there are a lot of similarities between our work here in the United States and over in Europe. But I think there are probably a lot of differences as well. Um, So I'd love to hear you just kind of talk about the ecosystem, uh, civil, criminal, when you're hired, how often you end up having to testify, whether you're writing reports consistently, um, and just kind of give us a feel for, for the environment over there, if you could.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you say, there, there are kind of two strands that we have here, the, the criminal side uh, and the civil side of the, of the system, both within the same judicial system, both have uh, varying rules governing them. But broadly speaking, from a forensic scientist's point of view, the work that you do in them is pretty similar because the science is the science, right? Um, you just might be writing a report with a particularly different title on it or something like that. But but the the analysis work that you do is pretty much the same. In terms of the collisions in the UK, the police go out to that, specialist uh, police officers, collision investigators turn up. Um, and typically in the UK, nearly, nearly all cases, uh, the police will do the data grab at the scene and also do the analysis with part of the wider team doing the doing the whole investigation about the, perhaps the driver and whether they were drinking and all of those kind of things with the forensic collision investigators doing your vehicle speeds and vehicle damage and and all the stuff that we're used to, um, and then that gets put forward um, to uh, the Crown Prosecution Service over here who make a decision. So somebody else uh, makes a decision about whether a driver is going to be charged or not. Slightly different in some of the other areas in Europe in that the police will go to the scene, but they, may, they might outsource uh, an investigation to a forensic practitioner from a private company. But typically in the UK, that works done by the police. As it then goes through the system, um, it will typically be looked at by uh, what, what we loosely call a defense expert here. But to be absolutely clear, Um, that that defence expert's talking about, perhaps which side is instructing you, uh, rather than uh, (laughs) your particular uh, duty. Because uh, us over here, just like you do, independence experts are absolutely independent, have to be down the middle, duty is to the court. So any report that the police writes will typically be looked at by uh, a private practitioner, who will, uh, hopefully, if everything's gone well, essentially agree um, with the conclusions. there will always be little things, maybe little little variances in the way that a particular piece of evidence is favored based on experience. But if the job's been done well, they just agree with what the, the police did. And uh, it may then be the case that uh, the defense report never gets given to the police officer, they never see it um, because ultimately um, it might not be that helpful for the Uh, particular defendants. So the last thing that the uh, defendant wants to do is have two experts telling them that they've done something very badly wrong. They'd rather just take their battle up against one of them. So that's the criminal side. When those two reports are together, should, the two experts should get together and complete something that's called a joint expert report or a joint statement. Um, And they the idea behind that particular document is to narrow the issues that the court has to deal with. Um, So they will sit down and list the areas in which they agree and which they disagree. Um, That's helpful in uh, criminal court, but it probably plays even more strongly on the civil side, which I'll I'll talk about. Because in the criminal side, um, just like you guys, all of this evidence has to be given to a jury. So it doesn't matter whether all the experts agree on everything, it still needs to be rehearsed in the court and put in front of a jury. If we talk about the civil side now, um, well, they typically in, uh, in the UK, there there isn't a jury. Civil trials are heard by a judge who makes the decision. Um, and what that helps to do, that particular document, is to really streamline the court process. So if the experts agree on nearly everything, well, the judge doesn't really rehear that evidence because it's already agreed, and therefore you can shave one or two days off of a, a trial. To give you the comparator between uh, the two before we go and rehearse what the civil side looks like over here a criminal trial for a um, we would have the offence of causing death by dangerous driving, which is our our highest um, driving offence over here. If we were to park, you know, an offence like murder, where it was, you know, the the vehicle's used as a weapon. Um, If you were driving down the road really badly, the highest offence in the UK would be causing death by dangerous driving. That trial would often be two weeks, maybe three weeks, um, played out in court. The similar kind of crash, but heard by, Uh, a civil trial, you probably do in two, three, maybe four days, depending on the level of an agreement between the experts. So civil, I spend most of my work in civil. um, And very similar to you guys, this is less about um, working out whether you can get over the threshold of guilty or not guilty. You know, there are two verdicts over here and it's very black and white. It's a very binary decision that a jury has to make is guilty or not guilty. In civil, well, we're talking about apportioning the blame. Now we're talking about, well, yeah, they were very bad, but were they 100% bad or 90% bad or 80% bad? And the amount of money that's being talked about in these cases uh, over here, typically a catastrophic loss case would be in the order of £10 million which is depending on what the, what the current exchange rate is, is what, 12, $12 million, $13 million, something like that would be the amount of money that they are talking about. And we would then be um, literally divvying up that pot of money uh, according to where the liabilities sit. So 10 million pounds, 70-30, well, that would only be 7 million pounds paid by the insurers rather than uh, the whole 10 million. So in civil, they tend to do a lot more deeper digging around the facts because there's a bigger ticket associated to it. And sadly, when there are insurers involved, um, as we all know, well, you know, it, it's a game about money, unfortunately. Not that I see anywhere near that kind of money. That that would be nice, but, but sadly... You don't get
0: 20% of the ask, yeah. <laughs> no, uh...
1: no, sadly not. Although that would definitely call into question the impartiality of an expert wouldn't it i think it would if you got paid off according to the result that that would that would definitely uh, definitely cause some significant questions
0: yeah but if, if the case is big enough they're probably not afraid to spend 50 to a hundred thousand pounds to try to figure out exactly how things happen
1: I, exactly that exactly that yeah
0: okay it sounds like there are a lot of similarities uh, between the states in Europe on that front, uh, as far as, as far as, uh, figuring out how at fault a certain party was, and then divvying up the, the pot accordingly, um, on the, so I don't do any criminal work, uh, but it sounds like there's a lot of similarities there too. One of the big differences is that meeting of the minds getting the experts together so i'd love to hear more about that process because i've had so many cases where i'm like if i could just sit down at a conference table with the other expert and have a conversation then i don't think we'd be having to have a lot of these fights in front of uh, the jury or the judge so what is that meeting look like is it similar to a deposition where there's a court reporter and stuff or
1: no, so you, so you guys don't have that situation where the experts get together.
0: It's so strange. It would it would it would literally be inappropriate for me to talk to a colleague about my analysis without the attorneys and the like they wouldn't even it it would be it would be strange and it's crazy because a lo- of course a lot of times I'm going up against friends who I respect and I'm just like it would be great to talk about the facts and say well, this is how I'm seeing it convince me that I'm wrong or vice versa and I think we could have Productive conversations there, but it 's inappropriate
1: ah great yeah so so this is a really, really useful document i, I didn 't realize that that doesn't that doesn't happen with you guys yeah in in nearly every case that will be instructed, be that criminal or civil um and our reports are already submitted, they're already exchanged, they're already, if you like, in front of the court, even though they, they, you know, we're, not, we're not quite at trial stage yet. So our reports are in and locked in, we can't do much to, to, to change them, it's not like a discussion pre-putting our analysis. But then the courts will direct, with a specific timeline, that we are to uh, discuss the matter and produce a list of uh, areas of agreement and disagreement. This is a conversation that unless uh, th- there is a route where the the lawyers, in our case, your your attorneys, could be involved in that meeting, but that's very rare. The idea behind it is it is expert to expert. Nobody else is involved to the point that when I start talking to my counterpart, I can't talk to my side, my legal side, my the attorneys or the solicitors on my case until we've completed that document, because it would be wholly inappropriate for them to um, have influence on me while I was in, in those discussions. Now, how do they go? Well, there can be a real vary, As you say, sometimes um, you've got two reports. It, it, it all depends really where you start. You can sometimes exchange analysis with somebody and go, well, they're the, they're the same, then, aren't they? Uh, and you're still directed by the court to sit together and produce uh, areas of agreement and disagreement. And you're like, well, you could just read our reports and save yourself a load of trouble because we, you know, even if you just read our conclusions, you'd see we're saying the same things. Sometimes you get into a situation where there are differences in the analysis, but ultimately um, they. They're immaterial in terms of the conclusion, you know, had they been traveling at the speed limit, the pedestrian would always have walked clear, even though our approach speed is five or 10 miles an hour out. You know, the the material conclusions you reach are the same. So you do spend a very short period of time um, discussing where the differences are and why, if you can't reach an agreement between you by going, yeah, but you've got that mark. I don't know two meters longer than it actually was here look i've got the better measurements um and the other person goes "Ah." in which case then that's right yeah the speeds become this or or whatever and then the third time that you have is when you are miles away um with each other
0: those might be the awkward conversations yeah that might make the system just a little bit more difficult to deal with but
1: yes it can it can be it can be and some of those uh, discussions really test your professionalism at times. Particularly, uh, how do I put this delicately on a recorded podcast? If you <laughs> if you are dealing with uh, one of the practitioners who um, takes their duties as an independent expert very lightly, um, then then you uh, have more of a struggle.
0: Morally flexible, by the way, is is how we generally term it. Is that out,
1: how you do it? Morally or, yeah. flexible. I can't Mor- find like that no, Mor- morally yeah. flexible. Yeah, exactly. Well, well yeah, <laughs> I think I think we're talking about the same kind of people, aren't we? Yeah. Um Yeah, and then and then you have a situation that becomes um there's a real skill into writing those because the judge will have that document in front of them and you um have to put enough work into the areas of disagreement that will come back to bite them. If they are being um, playing a bit fast and loose with the truth, that's the document they're going to be held to and cross-examined on. So you have to do quite a lot of work about explaining why you hold your position and why they hold theirs um, into ultimately a document that's going to be used in cross-examination against them. I love it. Um, but most of the time, most of the time, if you come up against an expert that's done the analysis properly, these aren't particularly difficult things to write. Um, and, and sometimes the real skill in writing that document is keeping it short because, you know, sometimes as experts, we like to be quite verbose, don't we? And, and write down lots of stuff and and all of the geeky bits and pieces. But ultimately, if you agree, That's all the court wants to know. Do they need to spend a lot of time speaking to two of the experts when ultimately they agree on something? You know, they almost give the court a fast pass that says, this is what the experts are saying, but the disagreements. Now we're going to get stuck into those. So it's quite an important document. And like you say, sometimes it saves the court a lot of hassle just by having the two experts in a room together, um, discussing, discussing the case.
0: Yeah, I imagine too, there's, there's, uh, I don't want to hang on this too, too long, but it's super interesting to me because I imagine sometimes you go in there and you're like, well, it's a sliding motorcycle. I was using 0.4 HEs with a standard deviation of one, three. And then the other guy's like, well, I got a paper that's perfect for this case, just because they did 10 slides with this exact motorcycle or something crazy like that. And you're like, oh, okay, that's awesome. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Let's use that one. I think that's a better idea. Exactly that. So And that would be great, because every once in a while I mean there 's so much literature out there every once in a while, I get another report or another analysis from an expert, and i 'm like, "Oh wow, that is a more on point study, and i 'd like to integrate that
1: absolutely and 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 occasionally, although it shouldn't happen, and we should identify it sometimes, uh the other experts seen more exhibits than you have um, right. and I, I, ideally, you should be working from the same information, but it doesn't always matter it doesn 't always happen like that. And yep. ultimately, if somebody rocks up to court with a with a better set of i don't know photographs or measurements or something that they they got from the scene, well, you know our duty is to independently analyze the facts that we have in front of us, and if they turn up with better measurements, well then we work on those
0: yeah, I, I totally agree. There's one quote that I heard recently I don't know who said it, and I'll probably get it wrong, but you'll understand the concept. And it was something to the effect of somebody uh, blasting somebody for changing their mind. And the response from the person was, well, when I'm presented with new information, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And I, I thought that was just perfect. It's like, I, you know, that's what I should be doing. You're saying that it's a bad practice. But, of course, it's the right thing to do when you're presented with new information. So it,
1: It's awkward. It, it It's an awkward and uncomfortable time. But, you know, just just in the mind, our duties to the court. You know, I don't know whether it's expressly written uh, in the States, but in, in terms of our the rules, the criminal uh, procedurals and, and civil uh, procedurals that we have over here, um, make it very, very clear that the expert's duty is to the court. Um, so, and that's it. If you turn up with new information, my duties yep. to the court, not not to them.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that's the way that I look at it too. Is is my duty is uh, to the to the truth, to figuring out what happened. And you're hiring me to figure that out. You're not hiring me to give you an answer that helps your case out. And uh, you know, people who are hiring me for the latter uh, will only hire me once because I am not going to play that game.
1: Yeah, and 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 it normally breaks down halfway along the process, so we don't even get yeah. to. Don't 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 even do the full job. Yeah.
0: So and how does how does writing that report work? Are you actually interacting? Do you write it during the meeting or you is there back and forth between during the meeting it gets written?
1: Well there's there's no set protocol um really. And again, it depends on how far away you are to start with. Um typically there's an unwritten rule in the UK that the the claimants uh experts will do the first draft. That's only really an informal, uh, an informal sort of uh, uh, agreement between experts, really. But again, with with workloads and things, sometimes you know that 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 always changes. Um, but you, generally speaking, you will have a discussion. Somebody will go away and do a draft. You you could write it together. Nothing stops you doing that, and then often uh, there's an exchange of emails. Depending on how close you are um, with that exchange of emails, maybe maybe a quick phone call or a quick Skype call or whatever, um, just to chat over some of the refinements um, about how it's going to be written. Um, often easier if you if there are no material disagreements. If uh, there are lots of disagreements. Well, you know, you're both trying to express your position of why you don't agree with the other person. So you could be, you know, 10, 12 drafts, um, if if it had to be.
0: That sounds expensive, yeah. Uh
1: yeah, it can, so 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 if you looked at the document on its own, yes, that, that can be quite expensive. But if you think about the saving to the court process, it's it is so valuable because if you save I don't know two days at trial for that right you now you've got all of your attorney fees all of your court fees it's cheap it's cheap yeah um so so it depends it depends really
0: you are you this might blow your mind you and you may already be aware of it, but in California where the majority of my work is there are no reports so our first disclosure of our opinions is really at deposition so mm. Uh, recently they enacted a rule where you have to provide your file at least to opposing counsel three days prior to your deposition. And for a lot of experts, that includes an opinion sheet, but just very brief summary of their opinions, or maybe yep. not at all. Um, so the first time they're hearing them is at deposition. And that's where basically all of the back and forth has to happen between the experts, if it's possible. You know, You say, well, how do you disagree with Mr. John Doe? and you verbalize those disagreements. But a lot of the time, uh, especially if you're a plaintiff expert, you'll be getting your deposition taken prior to even hearing what the other expert says, so you can't even comment on it. So your first comments come up either via cross-examination through your client or uh, during your direct examination. It's interesting.
1: No, that's very different. That's very different. We we know what the other experts written in their report, what they've studied, what they've done. We've had this discussion before. And actually, one of the things that, that we do at trial should, because lots of civil cases settle before actual trial, but um, if when we get to trial, we're, we're providing our counsel, our, our, our attorneys with questions, you know, ask him this, ask her that, yeah. you know. How, yeah. how do how do they align those two things? So at trial, we're working quite hard because we're, we're saying you need to, you need to find out their position on this. You need to know what they're going to say on this. Um, and that's during live evidence. So, so no, we, we definitely have it in advance.
0: I love it. I, other than writing the report, uh, which I, so I, my career started in Massachusetts and we had to write a report for every case, it varies state by state here. Most states you have to write a report. California is one of those where you don't, and that was part of the appeal of moving here. Quite honestly, because most of my work is analytical at this point, I don't have to write a report every time. Although, as I'm sure you know, there are a lot of benefits to sitting down and putting all your thoughts on paper and working through everything. Um, it, it helps you clarify everything. But uh, very, very interesting. So, in in how did you start down this? process to begin with how did you become part of the metropolitan police and in their accident investigation unit if that's the proper terminology
1: yeah yeah it was then or collision investigation unit or road death investigation unit we have a we have a few different names for it uh in the uk but but essentially the the team that go out to fatal car crashes um so i left university uh, back in 2008 with my shiny degree certificates. Um and up until that point I had uh always wanted to go into the world of banking because to make loads of money and be you know have a wonderful life. And, sounds and, nice. Yeah. And all of that, yes, yeah, so wouldn't wouldn't that have been nice. And sometimes yeah. I wonder whether I made the right choice. No. <laughs> um and there so I applied to the Metropolitan Police were um Advertising for uh, it was a role that was typically done by police officers, um, and they were taking a couple of civilian staff into those roles to see whether it could be done by a civilian. Uh, it's not something that I'm doing a lot of now, so I think I managed to break the system. Um, but, <laughs> but <laughs> bad idea. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa. Exactly. No more yeah.
0: civilians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. Um, th- this was my wild card. I, I don't particularly know why I applied. Uh had a degree with applied physics and it sounded applied physics y at the time, not really knowing much. My my probably my entire knowledge of uh, roads policing and traffic policing was what I'd seen on the telly. Um, you know, it, it I didn't really know anything about this uh applied to it as my wild card and the more and more i found out about it the more it's well that's quite interesting you know it's a practical use of of what i've done um and yeah the rest with that is kind of history the more i did the more i enjoyed and i i I caught the bug very much so when you speak to a lot of people that do things like this it, it, it it just captures you uh, yeah. and i'm still fascinated by collision investigation now so yeah it was the shiny thing out of the corner of my eye that um has turned into a career
0: yeah that's pretty much how it started for me as well i didn't really i didn't know about it and i was introduced to it by one of my undergrad professors and once i got introduced to it i was like well this seems like tons of fun it's it's putting a lot of what i like together in one package and that first role with the Metropolitan Police. That was uh, an accident investigator, like straight out of the gate?
1: Yeah, straight oh. out of the box. Yep, straight out of the box. Awesome. From, um, and, and obviously there was training and courses and mentoring and things. But, yeah, the the only thing I did at that time was, was collision investigation.
0: So then you stuck there for eight years, obviously got a lot of exposure to a lot of, uh, I'm sure, uh, brutal crash scenes and learning how to interpret evidence and it be, it boots on the ground has uh, got to be invaluable. Uh, you know, from the private side, it's very rare that I'm able to put myself uh, on scene. I'm usually there years afterwards. Yeah, exactly. um, and, and and then you started your own firm in uh, eight years later. So that was uh, uh so what that was about seven years ago at this point?
1: Yeah, well, there was. I was fortunate enough to be uh, able to start exploring this idea while I was still in the police, so I, I had an overlap of a, of a couple of years. Um, so, twenty fourteen um, was was when I came up with this idea of, um, wouldn't it be good if, you know, I found a way to do this privately um and i spoke to a couple of different companies about going to work for them and there was just a little bit of me that was um certainly not speaking ill of them because they're you know they're good companies they 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 have good reputations but um there was always something with them it was like "Mm, yeah but wouldn't it be better if we did this but i couldn't do that here or or wouldn't you want to do it this way but couldn't quite do it there and then well long and short of it you you reach the position where you go if if i want to do this i'm gonna have to do it myself so yep. i did
0: that's awesome that's similar for me we joke around here that we're running a pirate ship uh because we do a lot of things that if we're at some big company they'd be like there's there's no chance you're doing that yep. <laughs> and yep. um I, w- I wouldn't have it any other way it's uh it works out really really well and it sounds like you're in a similar position
1: yeah yeah
0: Uh, One of the organizations that's really intriguing to me, and you might have seen, I don't know if it came across your desk now that you're the the chairman, but last night uh, at like 10 o'clock my time, I signed up for ITI to become an affiliate member. Well, not a member, an affiliate. uh, I don't know how you would term it, but there's a few different. Member, okay. Uh, So there are a few different levels there I see. You can be an associate, an affiliate, and then a member. So I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about ITI and then also the different levels of membership and it sounds like once you become a full member that there's a lo- a lot of vetting that goes there you have to have certain education and prove your competency sounds like it's similar to actar in the states whereas it's it's a bit of a an accreditation of sorts or at least a stamp of approval
1: yeah so so exa- exactly that really we we're the uk uh, body uh, although we do have coverage you know as as we see you know, around the world um, for collision investigators in UK and wider afield. And what we try and do, or or it was born um, in the very late 80s, um, but realistically, early 90s, it it was a gathering of um, like-minded people. It was the idea to get um, uh, people who were previously out there practicing previously out there doing things um, to um get into a situation where they could share ideas that's all it was an an idea of sharing ideas and perhaps getting to the point where um they might be able to write some papers or to try and um get try try and raising the standard professionalizing the industry if you like that that kind of idea yeah so there were lots of meetings and out of those meetings, there was some shared knowledge, and out of the shared knowledge became uh, a paper and, and a journal. Uh, Impact is our journal, comedically named as, as, as Impact, where we have a load of different uh, papers, and and they can be really wide ranging, from uh, human factors to um, uh, digital data on vehicles, to um, road design, to um, coefficients of friction. You know we. There's, there's no real limit to, to what's on there. If it's related to collision investigation, then, then it plays. So that's been from the early 90s, so 33 years almost worth of uh, papers and publications, which is really good. And it is an idea to get like-minded people together, but also uh, recognizing their standard and their ability, and have some kind of uh, vetting. We're not a regulator uh, in the UK, um, but we do set the standards for people who want to join. and And you can start at a relatively low level. So, for example, uh, uh, an affiliate could be anybody um, that uh had an interesting collision investigation
0: yeah i like that wording i was trying to select what i was gonna do and i was like okay well i don't want to submit an application or anything not yet anyway so uh, that wording was there, interested in collision in, uh, investigation. I was like, well, that, that's yeah. me. And I'd love to participate in some of what's going on with the body and then uh, read the publications. And I imagine yeah. that's what that gets.
1: Exactly that, exactly that. And and actually, if there if there are, uh, are people here that are thinking that that, that is a really nice way uh, of getting into the organization, it's relatively inexpensive um and it gets you access to so much material so if anybody was thinking about that that would be that that would definitely be a a good route in
0: that's one of my bones i to pick i guess with our industry on a worldwide level is that there are a lot of provincial uh publications that don't get spread between the countries at times where it's like you guys might have the perfect publication for what i need on a certain case but it's just not kind of in the ether here in the states yeah. so nobody knows about it unless you have somebody who is kind of cross-pollinating and for yeah. us i think wade, wade bartlett's been a big part of that colin glenn has come over to yeah. uh rex and and spread some of that knowledge so i'm excited about that
1: exactly that we we work very closely with evu uh, which is the the european um crash Teams uh, or or crash body, I should say. So we work quite closely with those. But there's certainly a lot more stuff that can be done between us and ACTAR. For example, you know, just this share of knowledge. At the end of the day, it's 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 a science. It is a discipline. Um, we have to share the knowledge, otherwise we'll all just sit over there knowing our little thing. But it doesn't exactly. actually help us investigate how people died um, at the end of yep. the day. So the more that we can knowledge share, share ideas and like any kind of research, really, you know, no, nobody does the whole bit of research themselves. You know, you, you do a little bit and then somebody else takes that and moves it a little bit further. And then somebody else picks it up again and goes a bit further. That, that's how we learn. So that share of knowledge really important um slightly digress there um but yeah no that that's cool so that back to the membership grade so um we then have the associate member we uh, i'll step away from the associate very slightly and talk away uh, talk about members first because it puts then associate into a little bit more context so full member we're talking about reconstructionists so people who uh go and reconstruct collisions and to be a member, there are various different entry requirements, but having some of your work peer checked and assessed to check that that you're competent um, is one of those elements, but that's aimed at reconstructionist. But there are lots of people in our industry who don't do reconstructions, but are very uh, competent at what they do and play a crucial role. People that do vehicle examinations, for example, not not every collision investigator in the UK can also go and take a vehicle apart or go and examine it forensically. And so there are other people that who would be heavily involved in those kind of things who would be better suited for uh, the uh, the associate role. Um, Those that do exclusively human factors, for example, but don't actually reconstruct a collision, again, that would be the associate Um, role.
0: I love it. And so where are uh, you guys getting the majority of your training? So here in the States, it would be like Northwestern University has a great program. IPTM has a great program. And then there's all sorts of just uh, people like you who would come and teach video analysis or somebody like me would teach motorcycle recon uh yeah. what what is the source there
1: so it, so most of the training will be done for police officers we we used to have a, a qualification that was run by the city and guilds institute which is a, a, a an awarding body and that that uh i think that stopped probably about 15 years ago now, and it got taken over by uh, a university at De Montfort University. And they offer uh, a a series of different levels of qualifications from uh, sort of a kind of an a-level level level if you wanted to map it across which is our uh an a-level for us is sort of your um 17 18 year old school leaver so Mm pre-university that that would be the qualification they get so end of college i think for for you guys is it um end of high school sorry for you guys exactly um but pre-college or university and but all the way up to a degree level um so there are there are four different levels and uh people can do those modules and uh, achieve a bachelor's qualification. So that would be the route if you wanted to get the formal academic degree. Um, and then there's a number of other different training that that's done, as you say, those those modular kind of bolt-on um, bits. And I think what's been really good, you know, not not wanting to harp back to COVID days, but but with everybody offering these special uh, these specialist courses. Um, Had having to move them online, it's been much easier to do that share of knowledge internationally. Yeah, sure, you have to deal with time zones and be a little bit sleepy. And you know, some of us are getting up for breakfast, and you know, towards the end of the day, other people are cracking open a beer. It's all just a bit weird to watch the students (laughs) doing what they're doing. Um, But but it's really it's really helped um, in terms of. Sharing that knowledge internationally, nothing's quite as good as a classroom. I have to say, being being on the receiving end of training and also delivering it, that classroom feel for me is better. And and the discussions you have with uh, people at the end of the day in the bar, you know, are, are really helpful. So yeah. you lose that bit doing it online. Um, but what you can do is is deal with training that you probably not realistically have access to unless you've got the budget to jump on a plane and fancy a working holiday for a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's how we originally started uh, up our dialogue is I saw uh, an advertisement somewhere for your five day uh, video class, which was geared specifically towards video analysis and collision reconstruction. And I had never seen a class like that before. So uh, I, I texted uh, Sam, who runs everything here, and I said, hey, uh, get, uh, look at this class, get me in. And she said, you know that that's going to be from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. every day. And I was like, oh, man, OK, good point. Uh, OK, let's figure out another way. And then I reached out to you um, and I, I think so. I think the demand is going to be huge for it here in the States just because the majority of the video analysis classes that are available now they're not really geared toward reconstructionists.
1: No, exactly um, that. Exactly that. So things like lead, Lever, for example, great, great course, by the way. I've done Lever 4. Um, you know, great good good courses would would thoroughly recommend them. Um, but they they don't really deal with the the vehicle bit. Um, and that's where we're working, right?
0: Yep. Yeah. So as like one of my uh, colleagues here uh, took lever one and two, and he's like, you know, it's great, really well run. I don't plan on ever really using any of that. I It's three and four that he's going to be using more of, it sounds like, whereas your entire class seems like it's really beneficial for uh, the collision reconstructionist. So I know you and I have been chatting a little bit. Uh, I plan to meet with John, John Steiner and grab breakfast pretty shortly. He runs Mechanica here, and he has a big training facility, and I think that that's where we're going to hope to get you and uh, I don't know, we'll probably sell out at like 40 seats or something like that. And I'm sure that uh, we'll fill that up and have a good time. So I appreciate right. you uh, offering to do that. And you're probably going to be that that bleary-eyed guy in front of uh, 40 uh, Yankees and trying to trying to stay awake.
1: Complaining about jet lag. Yeah. Yes, uh, exactly. Everybody... I mean, you don't need to see clearly to do video analysis or anything like that. You, you could always <laughs> No, not at, 20. It's just... <laughs> not at all. Not at all.
0: Hey, the good news is with that accent, you'll sound way smarter than any of us anyway, so it doesn't even matter if you're speaking intelligibly. <laughs> uh, and and so video, it sounds like in digging a little bit into your background, and like I was saying before we were recording, that's one of my favorite parts of the podcast is I get to spend like three or four hours just looking into Mark Crouch or whoever I'm interviewing that day. But scary, the, scary yeah. Dog. It was all sorts of <laughs> the things that popped up. You'd, you'd, <laughs> <laughs> joke. Um, it, it, it sounds like the video an- uh, analyst thing kind of, it, it made you do it. In other words, you were just being presented with video analyses so often that you're like, well, I've got to dive deep into this, learn all this stuff, make sure I know what I'm doing. And then out from that is my assumption. And I'd love to hear you talk about it. Came the book.
1: Yeah, it, it, exactly like that. I, I sometimes, I sometimes uh, describe it as video analysis found me rather than the other way around. I, I certainly never set out to do um, video analysis. I, I didn't walk into collision investigation and go, I really want to do this video thing. Just yeah. wasn't like that at all. Sure, uh, certainly through my degree, we've done some uh, machine visiony stuff, so um, I knew about optics and cameras and how computers do things and those kind of things. So, um, but you could argue that about any kind of physics degree. I also, learned about how things hit each other and bounce off each other. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily me specializing in that route. But I found myself in um, London in the Metropolitan Police, and and actually. London was at the time divided up into five collision investigation units, each covering a covering a section. Um, and the section that I covered was bang in the middle. So I was at the central traffic garage at the time. And as we can all imagine, that is in the middle of London. So mm. cameras capturing collisions, even in sort of 2008, there was loads of it. There was absolutely loads of it. And um, there were a few um, pretty basic techniques that people had learned organically positioning a vehicle for example you know well if you could see where it was on the ground because it drove over some white paint or something like that or a, a manhole cover or a stop line or something well you could position the vehicle and do that twice you get a distance and everything's good um, so as long as as long as the crash you had conformed to those very tight set of rules and it just so happens to be driving over the right parts of the road you could do something with it what that meant conversely was we had a load of video that didn't conform to that and it was sitting in drawers not you know not literally it's sitting in evidence bags in in the property store but essentially uh, as investigators we were putting it down going well you can't do anything with that and that sat really uncomfortably with me you know you've got you've got a window of a prescribed size capturing a an area, all I need to do is work out where it is in that picture and the time it took to go between the two. And then you can calculate the speed. In many respects, video analysis in CCTV is one of the easiest things to do because you need two positions and a time. And what what's one of the basic collision, uh, one of the basic calculations we do in collision investigation is an average speed. Yep. You know, distance yeah. over time. And that's all video analysis is. Well, that part is. Um, So I started with a very basic concept of, I just need a distance and I just need a time, and then we can do stuff with it. What happened out of that was actually, there are a few things that you can use if you think about how light travels or how a camera records, or if you were able to somehow line up this 2D image against a 3D world, and then you could, pretty much just point at where it was on the screen. Um, and you can take these concepts and and just start playing with them. And that's what I did. I didn't have a particular uh, goal. I certainly didn't sit down to to set out with a proper scientific method of going, well, this is what we're going to test. This is the hypothesis. This is how we're going to design the experiment none of that so i'm a very bad scientist i can think of some of my lecturers at university just pulling their hair out with me i didn't i just played with it i just played with it and seeing what could be done and on the back of that if we fast forward a few years um came up myself and steve came up with a few techniques that worked and they really did work so we sat out we never sat out to write a book there's going to be a theme through this podcast if i do things that i never really set out to do i just (laughs) kind of do them because and then take them to the next thing and then wait until i'd stop or get bored which hasn't happened yet um we wanted to put together uh, a manual and we still describe it more of a manual than a book Mm -hmm. we wanted to um put these techniques together as a training manual for colleagues and what came out of the back of that was, well, we actually had a few of them. And if you put them together and you wrap a cover around it, you can call it a book. Um, so that that's really what we did. But, but if you read it and go through it, it's written very much so as, as, as a training manual. It feels more like a training manual than it does a book. Um, and that's deliberate because it's meant to be guiding people through some of the concepts, what you can use, when you can use them, and how you can get some really good results. Um, so so that was how it was born, really, um, completely unintentionally.
0: Yeah, and, and kind of like we were talking about earlier, when you're writing a report for casework, it forces you to put down what you know and realize what you don't know, and then you can start to fill in those gaps. There's nothing that keeps your brain as organized as as the written word. So uh, I appreciate you writing it. It's uh, And then teaching, I imagine this is kind of the foundation of uh, i have the book here this is kind of the foundation of the the class you teach and i have found in my own practice that writing what i know about motorcycle collision reconstruction and then teaching it you're exposed to a whole bunch of other people that have different methodologies and might take issue with something you're saying or add on to it and then you just become better and better at it um having yeah. launched yourself headlong into that Field.
1: yeah for, for two reasons well three actually the the first reason is that that was uh, that first edition was written in 2017 five years ago it's what is why we've had to update it really because things change it's, it's a developing technology and the the second reason is you you kind of always learn from students you, you don't have the monopoly on good ideas you know you you listen to the way that people encounter things and that's kind of how you keep your finger on the pulse, particularly in the civil world where we're getting things a couple of years uh, later, often in cases, you know, you could argue that well, the content that I'm exposed to is two years old now. Whereas if you uh, teach people that are very much so going out there at live scenes, well, you can pick up on what the the trends are. Mm. And thirdly, Coming back to the fact that it was written as a training manual, well, you understand how people think, the problems that they're having. What is it actually like for them to take that book and use it. So you're always tweaking it. And like any teaching material, the teaching material has almost driven the second edition because we've made so many changes to the content over five years that well, now we've got another training manual that we can wrap a cup around and and, and pass it on. So these things are, are like any area of research. I, I think it's like a living, breathing thing. It's not a, it's not a right. I've written the book. I'll put it down now. And then that's great because for the next 30 years, if you always apply those techniques, everything's going to be fine. That doesn't work like that. Yeah,
0: no, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, we have a recorded version of my, uh, my motorcycle class and. I learned new stuff so often that we're having to record specific modules over and over again and like, okay, well, the EDR module, you know, motorcycle EDR, I knew that that was something that's going to essentially have to be updated every year. Uh, some of the things, you know, if you're teaching mechanical engineering or something like that, you're pretty much good since uh, a long time ago. But in this field, like you said, everything's evolving and, um, what are some of the biggest you don't have to go over everything and i'm putting you on the spot here but what are some of the most notable changes between the first edition and the second edition kind of uh highlighting the evolution of the field and your interpretation of it
1: yeah so so there are a few things that have changed in terms of the content of the book we we've put some um two new uh or two new sections in that there they're in the, over a couple of sections, but they kind of bookend some of the content that was there at the front end it has a lot more video theory in because what we what we found was that um, whilst the positioning techniques are good, there was still uh, a kind of a lack of understanding of how a camera works, how compression works, how a date, how, how an image is stored, you know, ultimately how a piece of video footage is designed to trick you. Mm. Um, and just putting some some of that understanding and a little bit more wrapping in some of the some of the geeky theory stuff but everything that we found um about documents that you read some brilliant stuff but they're very technical and very good but is it ex- is it uh, accessible to a collision investigator who has got to learn video stuff it's it's you've got to be able to do video to be a collision investigator nowadays um, but it's not a natural Uh, it's not a natural thing about video theory so so how do we break down the key concepts of the theory and put that in at the tail end of the book um we've written a little bit about some guidance of uh how to give evidence Mm. now this could be slightly controversial and i'm kind of waiting to see what the feedback is but um we spent a spend a lot of time going uh, because we see people give evidence all the time some people give really good evidence some people not so much and it's more things about tips and tricks to take people who uh, may not have had a lot of court experience and um, but taking them through the processes to, to hopefully be giving evidence better at the end and I've been very fortunate that, that um a high court judge has helped me co-write that hmm. that particular section so it's not just me telling you how i think you should give evidence uh, i have written it with with a judge who hears it uh, and there are a few of his uh, little bugbears in there so those are the bits that are added on um sort of that are slightly different what are the developments in terms of technology two really and um, one is dashcam or vehicle born cameras um it only appears very, very fleetingly in the in the first uh, edition, but now we've put uh, more sections on that because that is just becoming more and more prevalent. And um, so uh, that that um, certainly appears in there. And some of the additional software techniques that that we can use uh, with with more three D scanning, with some software assistance, we can we can try and do add add a couple more techniques in there that are a little more um, is it software based. Um, so it's just updating it, really.
0: Yeah, and the, as one thing that was interesting to me, uh, and I'd love to get your your thought on, like the dash cams. Obviously, they're they're a lot more uh, popular now. A lot of cars are driving around with them as as bolt ons, and then a lot of cars are driving around with them now as OEM equipment. You know, they're installed by the manufacturer either for pre impact detection or autonomous operations of some sort. So, uh, are have you been getting Well, I I guess I'll ask two questions in one because it's something else I wanted to get to is just how uh, the sources of videos have just blown up over the past several years. Like in 2008, when you're in London, I imagine the majority of the cameras that you had access to were were still uh, CCTV surveillance type stuff. Then you start getting everybody strapping a GoPro to their head or dash cams, uh, and things like that. So how have you seen the evolution of uh, just the the frequency of actually getting video the uh diversion of uh not diversion diversity of sources and then are autonomous vehicles giving you videos
1: yes so um dealing with those uh in reverse autonomous vehicles are are still breaking over here but yes we've we've looked at some video you for the purpose of autonomous operation um, and there are all kinds of issues with timings and things like that, because they're, they're, the, the timings that they use, the time intervals can be all over the place. Um, and it's very difficult to work out whether the metadata is accurate in terms mm. of calculating speed. So the autonomous vehicle cameras and and explicitly saying the cameras used for autonomous driving, they are um, they're an area that I need to look at in great detail because that going to be around and I'm not sure how reliable they are at this stage. If it's a camera that's designed, even if it's OEM or something that you buy yourself and aftermarket and stick in, um, they're generally better. They, there are a few um there are a few on the market very cheap ones that you don't necessarily know their origin Um, they can be problematic sometimes but generally if it's a camera fitted to a vehicle that is that its purpose is to capture the road for a crash or whatever you can typically do things with those okay so how 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 has there been a bit of a, a diversification of the videos that that i deal with What hasn't changed is that most shops, pubs, clubs, or evening venues will have something fitted to the outside of them. Quality has probably been upgraded, um, that you can get some nice sort of HD 5 megapixel cameras on the outside of buildings now. So the the frequency of those is probably about the same, um, but with slightly higher quality
0: they've always wanted to capture that hooligan activity and the hooligan yeah. activity still
1: persists. <laughs> yeah, and and certainly in London, there are all kinds of licensing requirements. So, uh, and I'm sure it must be the same for, for some of the you guys at uh, various states that if you wanna get an alcohol license, for example, in London, you need to have a certain type of CCTV system, not not talking about, you know, have to buy this brand, but it has to cover entrances and things like that as part of the licensing requirements. So, always going to get those. The two areas or two slash three areas that we've seen a vast uh, increase in are um, domestic properties. So residential properties where things like ring cameras, nest cameras, doorbell cameras, um, fitted to uh, the fronts of people's houses and a variation on those themes. So nest ring and a couple of other operators, they do relatively inexpensively um, other Wi-Fi cameras that you can stick up. So people would have a doorbell and maybe something else covering their front drive, for example. So we've seen a huge increase in the number. Uh, I haven't, I don't know the numbers, but but from experience, a significant increase in CCTV, video footage that is coming from uh, residential properties.
0: Yeah, who would have predicted that one 15 years ago that we'd be getting a lot of video from a doorbell?
1: Who'd, who'd have predicted that you know you you tell somebody to drop a parcel off when you're at work you know just yeah. because they rung the doorbell and um, so there's there's lots of that some uh, and, and again there's there's generally a bit of a theme with CCTV systems although there's always one that breaks the rule and um, the more money that's spent on the system generally speaking the better or easier it is to work with. The cheaper ones have issues with timing or don't quite have the resolution. So you always tend to work harder with the cheaper system than, than you do the than than you do a more expensive one. But that being said, these expensive systems aren't that expensive anymore. They're, they're, they're relatively cheap. I think a, a doorbell over here is, I don't know, about 80 pounds, $100 or, or whatever. And the stick up cameras go from you know half that price to about the same price so so they're around dash cameras have just exploded i'm trying to think whether i ever dealt with one in say the first five years of my career so 2008 to 12 13 something like that i, I just i just can't think of using them and now in my casework everywhere and the same goes for, as you said, cyclists, motorcyclists, because a GoPro will strap to the handlebars, strap to the top of your helmet or or whatever. And um, there's lots of that. There's lots of that as well.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it when they, they document the crash like that, especially with the GoPros, because now they have GPS data on board. They have accelerometers on board. So not only, it's it's essentially they're riding with the data acquisition system now, including video. So it's better than if they had a V-box on, Uh, unless it's a video V-box. That's basically what they're riding around with now.
1: Yeah, because there's actually quite a few studies, particularly with the GoPro 10s and 11s. And you always have the issue of, you know, what's happening to the rider's head if, if they've got it on the helmet or, uh, you know, on the handlebars, what, what's happening through the front suspension and, and dealing with that that jitter and in the, in the Z-axis. But, but generally speaking, for things like speeds, though, that's an incredible source of data. Um, because, as you say, the, the, the X and Y um uh, x and y uh, coordinates of of the uh of the device are pretty good if you smooth the data a little bit sure you know you have to be careful what you're using but yeah, br- yeah. brilliant for getting a speed on the approach
0: yeah i i i love that that that's out there now and it makes me think of uh, edr because here in america i think that might be a big difference between venues in that in America, basically every car that rolls off the assembly line right now has an EDR and we can access the vast majority of them with the Bosch tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not, it's not true from what I understand over there.
1: So um, what what is true is that all be fitted with an airbag control module. All of them will be having the data and storing it. There are just various restrictions about some of the vehicles that that we can access um, because they're still locked down by the manufacturer. Now that is getting a lot better, and I think the pressure is coming on the manufacturers because sort of VW Group, which is Audi over here, Volkswagen, those kind of people have just said no, we we are going to share that data now. So for us, the real difficulty, real difficult vehicles are sort of BMWs and Mercedes. So so kind of your luxury end of the luxury end of the market. Um, Probably because they don't want to tell their customers that they're going to give off they give up their data yeah. should they be driving like an idiot and crash. Um, whereas you, yours is all locked down in legislation. We were making some real inroads in terms of effectively uh, adopting the American um, legislation into EU law and then without getting too political in the UK we decided that we didn't want to be part of EU law anymore uh, so uh, yeah. we decided to I, leave that
0: I heard about that yeah
1: I heard and uh yeah yeah and and things like that cause uh difficulties because it's still not clear what's going to be done and also the time that got taken up by both sides the EU and uh, and the UK in that process meant that other bits of legislation that may well have been adopted pretty quickly like uh, edr um just haven't really gone anywhere in the last five years which is a bit of a shame it's a bit of a shame because it really is yeah that is gold
0: yep that is the best i always tell people is like the best reconstruction unless it's on video doesn't compare to your average download nowadays i'll never be able to tell you with scientific certainty what the driver was doing five seconds pre-impact, unless I have video or EDR. Um, so let me, let me just make sure that I understand that. Say a a GM car gets into a crash tomorrow, airbags pop, the data is there. In other words, GM on a car that is built for the European market has an airbag control module, of course, and within that module, it has an EDR and the data is sitting there, but for legal reasons, you can't
1: acquire it. Yep. So we plug in same Bosch kit exactly the same plug it in but put a uk vin number in it and computer says no won't give you the data so could you spoof it you can spoof it but not not all of them you know again with the the higher end of the markets um are are wise to the fact that that's just the easy workaround for us is is spoofing it and so they tend not to so so some of them they can't you you can get data out some of them and would always try it and i think it will eventually come for us but yeah it's very frustrating you know particularly when manufacturers go no that data isn't stored and it's like it is stored it is no it's got to be stored um you know um yeah no we don't keep it
0: I imagine that if we have a follow-up podcast in 2033, that's going to be a thing of the past. And uh, you'll look back on this time and just be like, "I can't, I can't believe that was happening."
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true because it's so silly. It's so silly.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, at least here, like you, you know, you say the you either have to get the owner's consent, whoever owns the car at the time of the investigation, they have to sign something. Or they have to record a statement, say you have authorization. Or if it's a criminal matter, then a judge has to issue a warrant. So it's not like willy-nilly. Nobody can just go grab the—anybody can't just go grab the data. It has to be some person of authority or who has permission. So I don't see any harm in it. Um, okay, so uh, going to uh, some of the more technical side of, of video stuff. We were talking a bit about it. Like you're saying with your speed analysis at the beginning, you're just like, all right, well, if I know when the frames are written and I know where the vehicle is at each frame, then I can get the average speed in that duration. Seems like there's a third component, which is video health. In other words, are those pixels that you're seeing tricking you in any way? And I, I like the way you put it, like they're kind of designed to trick you. And I remember when I first started learning about surveillance and I was just like, wait a second, what's going on here? Some of these are predicted pixels. Like they didn't actually, that's not what was visible at the time. I thought they were all I frames, but I kind of wanted to go through each one of those sections in a little bit of detail. Granted, we don't want, you know, your course is a five day course. So it's not like we're going to get through everything, but (laughs) to talk about position timing and then the health of the pixels.
1: Yeah, um, sure.
0: and starting with timing, maybe if if that works for you, it's just like how do you figure out when this frame was written? And uh, it seems like there's some pretty from some pretty tricky techniques if if it's not a straightforward case.
1: Yeah, so fortunately in the UK, most cameras work to a base rate of 25 frames a second, uh, and that's when they'd be going out to grab an image. And most of the time in the uk there isn't really a significant enough delay between when it goes out to grab an image and when it uh, and when it actively records it or when it first starts recording it but we're talking about how if we if we think about how a vehicle progresses through a piece of footage we can actually do a check at the end to make sure those assumptions that we've made uh, are true or not. So starting with a base rate of 25 frames a second over here, you guys would use 30, but the, the principles the same. Uh, over here in the UK, that would give a, a, a sort of a quantization to images of about point uh, of, of, 0.4 of a second, four of a second um, between images. But it won't always capture every image. It might not be going out for uh, an image every every 40 milliseconds what it might be doing is uh, going for every other one or getting that data but choosing not to record it because we've set on our uh, NVR or DVR that that we just want to um, have maximum storage you know we want to keep our footage for three weeks and therefore we're not going to we're not going to go out and get every single frame but we start from a premise where a fixed system should be, um trying to obey some kind of rules of course if we make an assumption like that we've got to come back and and make sure it actually is because you could go down some pretty interesting uh assumption tunnels and get some terrible speed that
0: car was going 200k yeah exactly
1: oh you'd be surprised some of the things obviously well you probably wouldn't um but, but, (laughs) but some of the things because if you make uh, we we do all of the time in in any area if we we start from the coefficient friction of a sliding motorcycle for example unless we've measured it well we're going to start and we're going to say our car gonna say you know it's fed we go for a 0.3 or something here and then but what you do is you would always go back to say well does that make sense for the speed that i know it started breaking at and the damage i've got at impact you know does it make sense and we do exactly we do this all day in collision investigation whether we're for various different disciplines and videos the same video is just one cog and it needs to make sense with everything else you've got you know if you've got if you've got sort of calculated your speed of 120 miles an hour one second before impact and all you've got is a broken wing mirror you know and there's and a bit of cracked fairing well well, that's wrong, then, isn't it? Um, you know it, those, those kind of things. So, so it's so we think of video as one piece in the puddle puzzle because everybody immediately starts thinking that it, it is the be all and end all, and it's just a tool. But anyway, I've got slightly sidetracked there. Um, so, timing—we're we're, we're trying to look for conventions. Now, it may be the case that um, we will have um, uh, longer frames and shorter frames, and those kind of things going on. But if you plot a vehicle moving through uh, a series of images, you would see if there was a longer frame or a shorter frame, because we know that cars can't instantly accelerate or uh, instantly break unless they've hit something. Um, but, but the transition through, even if it was an acceleration or a brake, that the movement of the vehicle should be reasonably constant. So if you see any jumps in the footage, well, that was a longer time period. And then you have to go and try and work out, well, does that obey a convention? You know, have I got 15 frames a second, which means I'm going to have short, short, long, for example, or those kind of things. But we're still just making those assumptions at the moment. We're, we're, making a, we're making an educated guess according to a predefined convention. There is a risk there, of course, that we're just trying to force what we see on the screen into our preconceived idea, which is always dangerous. So there are different ways to check it. The metadata can help, although you have to be careful with metadata because sometimes the metadata can be very wrong because it's just doing an average, it's just calculating. So you need to be a little bit careful about how you use that. And the final way would be uh, using a timing device, Uh, something like a light board. Um, I think uh, Axon have got one, formerly Input Ace have got one. Uh, We designed one in the UK over here. They work slightly differently, but the general principle is the same. If you position something in front of the camera that flashes or lights iterate at a certain rate. By looking at image by image to image and performing a calculation on which lights are on and which lights are off, you can um, uh, calculate the time that's elapsed. Now, happy days, if that is nice and regular, and uh, then you have a predictable pattern, even even if it's not regular in the sense that every single image is separated by the same period of time that's okay because that that's great but even if it isn't if you can predict the pattern and you know the time interval where you just need to find out where that jump is or where the change of pattern is and plotting a vehicle through gives you that
0: that's awesome i i love that idea of like you're talking about taking so obviously like you said if, if it's pinging on 25 frames a second that's easy anybody can figure that one out and do their analysis But when you have some sort of variable frame rate, from what I understand from CCTV, it's essentially managing resources. So it's going to ping one camera, then the next, then the next, and then that one. And that might not, that loop might not be a consistent duration. So you're going to get funky um, frame timing. From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to go on a little bit of a a talk here, but sometimes the metadata will tell you exactly when that frame was written. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. Um, But if you have a light, board and you put it up in front of that camera and you plot out i don't know how many you can do but i imagine with some of these computational programs that are available now or hopefully will be available in the future you could plot out 100 frames 200 frames 300 frames Uh, see what that pattern looks like thousands, Thousands, thousands okay yeah so then you can figure out okay well what is my average frame rate what's my max what's my min what's my standard deviation is there a pattern can i tell if it's like within the half a second it's going to always do x y or z and it's kind of a bit of pattern recognition
1: yeah all, all, all you're looking to do is for a predictable pattern that you can apply to your instant footage that's all you were looking for some something that you can predict um, that that's happening something that you know what it is you can quantify and predict it and then you can apply it
0: that's fantastic and so does the metadata at times tell you exactly when so I know the metadata will say, hey, this video is 25 frames a second, but will sometimes like using input ACE or AMP five or something like yeah. that. Can you say this frame was specifically written at this time to the? So you have
1: to be careful. So, so some can, um, so the presentation timestamp PTS time, which some people, uh, may be more familiar PTS presentation timestamp. That can be generated from a, couple of, uh, different re- from a d- couple of different places. It can be direct from the camera or from the, or from the NVR, depending on what the actual system is, but, but telling you exactly when it went out for that frame or exactly when it got it. It can also um, be a case of, well, I don't really know what it is, but I know I'm 15 frames a second. So I'm just going to take one second and divide it by 15. That causes Mm. you some problems, but you would see it if you plotted a vehicle because you would see a jump. Um, Or you could go, well, I know that I'm one minute 47 seconds long, this bit of footage. And I know that I have 223 frames or whatever. Uh, And then just divides one by the other and gives that as your average time So you have to be really careful. Metadata can be either really helpful or it can cause you all kinds of problems. But like anything we do in collision investigation, you always want to go back and check it, don't you? Always you you never blindly follow something and take a number that somebody popped up on a screen for you, punch it into your calculator and sit back going, Well, my work here's done. Mm, Yeah. You might you might come unstuck at some point.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And more, more trickery, like you were saying before. We're getting tricked sometimes as far as what the frame is showing us, and some of those pixels are current, and some of them are not. And you can also get tricked by the metadata. It's like, yeah, confidently tells you when that frame was written, and it's apparently not, not a given.
1: No, no, not always. But check it.
0: And and like you know, obviously, for anybody listening along who's doing reconstruction, if you don't know when the frame was written, then you can't calculate speed accurately and if that's what we're after the vast majority of the time is speed
1: yeah um, and and it's and it's also a, it's also a really interesting uh thing talking about the civil side uh as well it, it's it's often more challenging or more work to work out what your tolerances are in a calculation, or well, yeah. what it can be, whether whether you are going to pick your whether you are going to pick your eighty fifth percentile, or you are going to go for min and max, or wh- however you are going to present, you know, one 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 standard deviation. However, you choose to present it is fine, but but it's often more work to work out what your what your deviation is, what your tolerances are in your calculation than it is actually working out what sort of the middle value or your medium value or your one you think is most likely. That bit is often the easy bit. The trickier bit is going hmm, uh, what actually is my confidence here
0: yeah I, I agree and so that process that i was mentioning is kind of just spitballing but is that what you're doing you're measuring frame rate for a thousand two thousand frames looking at the average and the standard deviation and implementing yeah. that into your error analysis
1: yeah and and sometimes you don't need to do that many And the number that you need to do is kind of dependent on how regular it is. You know, if it is like absolute clockwork, I don't know, 100, 200, pick pick a number, ultimately until you are satisfied that you can stand in the witness box and say, no, the camera was doing this. And so what does that number mean to you? For me, if this camera is all over the place and I'm going to do some kind of statistical analysis and I want to see whether there's kind of a Gaussian distribution on this and we're all going to get stuck into the mathematical weeds, well, I'm going to want a lot and typically that's going to be about four figures. Okay. But as as we look at some kind of machine vision stuff that's coming, these you can have a situation where it's relatively easy to read these light boards because uh, in the correct setup and they've been designed in certain ways that it's, quite easy for a uh, for a computer to uh, detect on and off in the right circumstances that actually you can you can look through a big data set quite quickly um, to see what you're getting
0: that's cool yeah it doesn't have to be done by hand if you're setting a light board up with a specific system that knows what it's looking for
1: yeah it doesn't doesn't have to be um, sometimes there's a confidence in, in doing uh, a good selection by hand so that you can trust the machine process so that you can you can almost validate that technique so you know if, if somebody asks you the question in the box yeah but how do you know how do you know the computer was doing it properly where you go well I manually dipped sample 350 of them and they were all spot on and um, those kind of things and um, just how you you feel comfortable presenting that evidence really yeah
0: I think that's a really important point too. It's like, well, how much of this work do you have to do so that you can sleep at night so that you're comfortable with your analysis? Um, There's a book that I love Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance by Robert Persig. And he said in a technical field, peace of mind is not just one part of it. It's the whole thing. And I I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's like, yeah, yeah. I got to feel good when I'm done with my analysis and until I feel good with my analysis till I've, found that peace of mind, uh, I'm not done. There's still work to be, to be done. Yeah.
1: Oh, Ultimately, what do we want? We don't want the, the expert on the other side turning up and have found something that we didn't. That, yep. That's ultimately what it is, isn't it? Professionally and scientifically. And that, that's, that's the worst possible situation, isn't it? That, that, your, that your counterpart found something that you didn't.
0: I'll probably die 10 years earlier than I would have otherwise in that situation some heart attack or something you know yeah that that is the nightmare so then the other uncertainty comes from of course we know speed uh uh the frame timing now to get speed we have to know position uh i'd love to hear about your toolkit there and then any uncertainty there has to be uh mathematically paired with the uncertainty with the frame timing to come up with an ultimate uncertainty with respect to speed
1: yes and theoretically depending on what what you're dealing with is uh uncertainty or the believability of the of the pixels if you like what what's what's going on under the hood of the say the compression algorithm is do it, you have to apply something else there but yeah ultimately your error your error in speed because they're only two elements that go into it at distance and time. So your error in speed is made up entirely of your error in distance and time. And um, so we're doing some groundbreaking stuff on this podcast, aren't we? No, re- really, really. <laughs> <excellent things laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Pie. Like, wow, 2023, they finally found out what uh, feet per second is <laughs> it's feet in seconds.
1: <laughs> yeah. So distance. So what we're actually doing is we're doing positions and then measuring a distance. So, how can we get that? Well, it depends on what you're dealing with. I, I quite like I, I quite like um, uh, working out distances because you have a bigger toolkit to play with. Um, and there are some rules, there are some times when something would apply and other things wouldn't, or you need to take a step like correcting for radial distortion before you can position. But ultimately, Ultimately, you can choose whatever technique you want to to obtain a position, some will be better than others. And lots of this is just practice and experience, you know, which one's going to give you a better result here. But there's quite a few. Uh, certainly in the book, there's about six or seven different techniques that you could use. And um, depending on the circumstances you you're dealing with. So if it's driving over uh, um physical features on the road you use that one you know if it passes behind a lamp post for example we'll just draw a line between the camera and the lamp post and extrapolate it across the road that's where it's going to be but we must remember when we deal with things uh positioning as as uh, collision investigators we have a slight advantage here than say a pure video analyst that's looking at this because if you extrapolate a line across a road on a diagonal well it could be in where, where is it in the lane for example because that will change your distance if you've got a diagonal line across a road well was it was it in the gutter one side was it out towards the middle of the road because that they, they would be your if you took your uh, collision investigation hat off well they would be the tolerances you would have to report if you were just purely a video analyst yeah but we happen to know that a second later we've got perfectly straight wheels into a t-bone collision well well then we can just work out roughly where it was in the road sure there's going to be a tolerance but it's not gutter to middle of the road anymore is it, it we can we yeah. can refine those and that kind of helps us when we do that because we 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 take our video analyst hat and we also wear our collision investigation hat, and that's quite helpful. And then we get those two positions, and how do we measure between it? We can do that in a couple of different ways. We can physically go there, measuring wheel, tape measure, whatever your your particular weapon of choice is, um, or something that's becoming a lot more popular for us, and I'd spend a lot of time dealing with, um, 3D laser scans, point clouds. Um, however you get those, either, you know, whether you do it, the photogrammetry approach um, or whether you do uh, a TLS, a laser scanner approach, um, just look at some of the stuff like uh, Eugene Lissio's put out on those, just just some really good resources about, about how you use that. But 3D environment is becoming the thing at the moment because we don't need to shut roads or as a private practitioner, I don't need to dance in traffic, um, which is generally better.
0: Yeah. It is. And that's what I have found myself doing. Uh, one uh, One of the things that blows my hair back, I kind of fell down the photogrammetry rabbit hole in a similar way that you fell down the video analysis rabbit hole. And my favorite current technique for establishing the position of a vehicle on the roadway is to go out there, laser scan the whole thing, bring it back, bring it into photo modeler and then I can train photo and say, all right, here are the 3d coordinates of all of these pixels. And I'll take as many as I can 30 at 40, if I can, uh, sometimes it's five or 10, but yep. at times I can get 30 or 40, then I can account for the distortion field. Photo will correct for the distortion. It'll figure out the focal length. It'll know where the camera is. I can compare its calculated position of the camera to my scanned position of the camera. And now you can bring in a car and over, uh, you know, a point cloud of a car and overlay it on top of uh, the pixels that relate to that car. And you're like, that's that's where it is. Yep. So that, that's, um, that's it's one I've of seen... my favorite
1: uh, favorites as well. And, the, and one of the reasons why I quite like that is it kind of gives you a nice visual deliverable at the end. You know, you might yep. then go on to use that point cloud with a car position in it to do. I don't know, driver's view or something, or you might want to get the point where the brake lights came on and then you could wind back a little bit uh and with a PRT on it and work out when it all started happening. So it takes you further um for the rest of your analysis. But that can be quite time consuming that that approach yeah. as well. Um and you know if it's passing behind lamp posts and things well there's a really quick easy win if you know where the camera is and where the lamp post is and you have a good model of the road and so so it's just about picking the right tool for the job really like like everything we do it's about picking the right tool for the job but i like you i quite like that because it's quite visual and it's actually if you get into the situation where you need to explain that uh, to a court because it's pictures and because you can stage people for it and now i've lined it up and then i put a car in it and then i took the picture away and now we could you know it's it's a really easy way of really easy way of communicating your evidence as well so so yeah that is one of my favorites
0: i told i completely agree that's one of the big advantages to using that methodology is when you go to present your evidence it's very easy for the jury to understand what you did you can show them a fading video of the point cloud or the mesh coming over the pixels that relate to that car and then create a nice demonstrative. The other thing I like about that methodology, and I don't know how long we've been doing exactly this, PhotoModeler Premium came out, they handle point clouds really well now, so I can bring point clouds in, account for the distortion of the image, and now I can look at how my point cloud aligns with those pixels. And if it's great in the middle, but way off, over to the right, then I know I'm not doing a great job of accounting for distortion yet, and more control will help, or uh, maybe I can never get the distortion properly accounted for out there, but I have to understand my positions could be a little bit skewed out there, and I shouldn't weight that portion of the analysis as much.
1: Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. Come, Actually comes back to what we said a few minutes ago, actually, sometimes working out your tolerances is, 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 is the hard yeah. bit, and there are times when you come in any analysis, you get to the point of going, well, that's just, too unstable i might as well just be guessing if i if i wanted to put that you know there's nothing more than a guess at that point um yeah
0: what does your toolkit look like when you're and i agree there's different tools for the different for different jobs and not everybody has the ability to pull out a hundred thousand dollar laser scanner and pull out four thousand dollar photogrammetry packages and 3d modelers and spend 40 hours uh We understand that uh, some of the law enforcement agencies especially are just, they have way too much work to be able to do that. So just lining up the car with points on the road, when you are doing those more advanced analyses, uh, what does your toolkit look like? Software, hardware, and the the combination?
1: So we use uh, a Regal uh, TLS scanner, Regal laser scanner. I I find them really good for uh, road surfaces because... uh, but. Any scanner will do this. You just need to know your kit and how you get the best from it. Um, use Ampt5 for uh, lots of the video handling, um, distortion removal. But that's that helps us because we use, um, you know, do do other stuff with video as well. So we we have that because of the toolkit that that, that gives us with it. But again, you can do that with with uh, other things. And what we use for the reverse projection and the lining up of things, we use PC Crash for that. Okay, oh, cool. but again. Again, there there are different there are different models. You've you've got sort of things like Analyzer Pro or um, photogrammetry or drone based stuff instead of uh, having a, a, an expensive uh, 3D laser scanner um, and correcting distortion. Well, you can do that in Photoshop if you know what you're doing, or or there are actually a number of freeware programs that would do it. So it's not necessarily about um, how much money you spend on the bit of kit. It's about understanding what you do and how how it works best for you. Yes, you know, I'm in a very lucky position that we do lots of video work. So you might expect us to have some more of the top end video tools, sure. But, I, but what I wouldn't want people to go away with is saying, well, unless I have, yeah. you know, hundred thousand dollar laser scanner and you know however much these bits of software is i, I couldn't do it because that's simply not cha- that's simply not case
0: yeah i think that's i think that's a good point um in, in distortion correction you know like you said there's some free things out there and it, it's all a level of uh reaching a level of uh hopeful perfection you know as sometimes we calibrate exemplar cameras and does it have the exact same distortion characteristics as the subject camera? Probably not, but it's really, it's really close. It's the best we can do. If I can do a field calibration where I have 30 or 40 visible 3d control points. Great. I'm going to do that. Um, but sometimes, yeah. you know, we'll,
1: we'll put something up in front of the camera that takes enough of it. That's got grids on it. Lines. So the light board that we have is actually uh, a checkerboard. Um, and if you get that close enough to the camera, well, then it becomes a bit easier to correct for distortion, because you know that this is a series of squares that are all straight and lined up yeah. you know there, there are many different ways i think i think one of the things i still love about collision investigation is as a whole is no no two jobs are the same so sometimes as a practitioner you know yeah of course you're going to go to jobs that, that you've dealt with that are very very similar although that kind of can be the death of an investigation if you if you think you've seen it before but yeah and um, still that thrill of going mm, well this is a bit different isn't it How am i going to deal with this then is is the fun bit of why why we get out of bed in the morning
0: it, it really is and, and i think one of the things that we're seeing more of at least here in the states is body worn video and that presents its own unique challenges for accounting for distortion because it's so extreme so what what's your experience been there
1: yeah so so you've got two things well you've got three um because you've got uh, a massive distortion you've got a camera that uh, is just the nature of the way they're worn. Well, whilst, whilst they're meant to be nice and projecting forward, they're going to be at a weird rotation and a weird pitch that's just gonna be fundamentally unhelpful um, to to what you need to, because the bit that you wanna capture is always the bit that's when, when somebody's turned. Yeah. Um, and, they, and, and depending on which ones you have, they're also running different compression or smoothing algorithms and things underneath, which just make it, uh, extra exciting um for you um but you know you you work with what you've got and you can either do something with that footage which you probably can do something with nearly every bit of footage um you just need to be careful how you state how confident you are or how confident the court can be on, on your on your findings and calculations
0: yeah that makes sense We've and we've done different things with those. It's a little bit harder to grab a, a, an exemplar version of those and calibrate that. But if you have enough control in the background, and then, like you said, you're you're doing a common sense check at the end. Okay, my photogrammetry analysis says that the tire mark is here. Uh, is that consistent with the adjacent left turn arrow? Does it look to be about two feet to the left of the the turn arrow? Um, and, and you were talking about the the compression. In the smoothing and i think that brings us to the third thing we've talked about frame timing and then position then you have uh I frames, p frames b frames different codecs doing different compression uh yep. methodologies uh and and how i guess it would be good to probably not everybody's going to know what those things mean so if you could kind of introduce an i a p and a b frame yep. and then how codecs affect the way that you approach an analysis
1: There's a real temptation with uh, an image, uh, particularly with the CCTV image, to uh, think that it is a series of um, photographs, if you like, completely captured images, 25 frames a second, there are 25 completely captured uh, images uh and they're all new and every single detail in each of those individual photographs is new and correctly captured i
0: remember the day i lost that i was disillusioned and was like oh my gosh that's not true
1: come on that's not true hate to break it to you that that is not what happens in video because if we did that simply because if we did that and captured new color and uh, data on every single pixel in an image in a video our files would just be so big, we couldn't do anything with it. So what we do is we cheat with some of those pixels, we cheat. And um, if we say, well, that pixel value hasn't changed much from the previous image. What I'm not going to do, I'm not going to recapture the color of them, all of the information about that pixel. All I'm going to say is, Nick it from the image that came first. And when you play this bit of footage back, I've got nothing to show there, but I'm telling you, just repeat what was on the previous image. And this can happen in a couple of different ways. We can have frames that just only look backwards, only look back to our uh, image that we have uh, to an earlier image, or because when we're talking about it being recorded, not it's all coming into the camera in sequential order, but when we're going to store it somewhere, well, if we are able to mess around with the order and sort of steal uh, pixel values from an uh, image that was yet to come, we just store them differently on the computer, well, we can make a double saving, can't we? Because we can have some pixels, pixels from previously and steal some from the future. And that's one of the ways that it's done. And we hear this term IP and B frame eye or sometimes called a uh, a keyframe uh, an intraframe so that that is that is your photograph that is a newly captured image and that's brilliant all of those images are new and love all of those pixels are lovely and new and great that's what we want but if we start using P frames or predictive frames, which I really hate that term, by the way, but we're kind of stuck with it because you go into court and tell them that your pixel values that yeah. you to are predicted uh, and see how long you have to answer that question. Um, yeah.
0: Are you a psychic, Mr. Crouch?
1: And all the genius questions that attorneys make themselves feel brilliant about, but you just have yeah. to have a long explanation, a bit like we're going to have here, but slightly more formally. So a P frame will do that. It It will look backwards and say, well, is there anything that hasn't changed dramatically from the image before? And can I just steal those? And a B frame, a bi-directional frame is one where it looks forwards and backwards. So there is a bit of work that we need to do under the hood to understand, well, are we looking at something that's completely new? Or do we just need to be careful that that some of those values might have been stolen from a previous image; they're not actually at this moment in time. Furthermore, just to make things really exciting and just to blow everybody's mind that we haven't really uh, that, that haven't really thought about this before, I, I can play one other trick on you if I want to with those pixel values. Before we talk about some of the other compression tricks, um, I don't need to copy them in the same place. Because if I think there's been a little bit of movement, I'll go, yeah, but I can, I can move that colored pixel, the red door handle, for example. And all i do in this next image is copy that red pixel, but I'll move it slightly in this one. So it's not simply the case of just going, yes, but now that I can see it's moved, everything's good. No, not necessarily, because it might have copied it and moved it. Oh, Mm. now we're getting very, very, very complicated. (laughs) Very, very. Yeah, how
0: inconsiderate. That's very inconsiderate.
1: And now we're sat in this situation where we're going, oh, so I can't really trust anything in the image. Ah, but I haven't finished yet because what I'm going to do to that is I'm going to strip a load of the information out of the image because you only need a few bits and pieces to work out what's going on. The more I can strip out, the smaller my file size is going to be and therefore that's better but we're really good our brains are far cleverer than than we are like to separate those two because we're really good at picking up movement we need relatively little information to detect there's movement in an image or detect there's changes so if i can strip out a load of that movement information and leave you just enough that you can detect movement your brain is going to be happy If you play it back, you're going to be happy. But that's a problem for an analyst because now not only has that, some of those pixel values don't belong here, they've been copied. They've also been moved to a different place according to an algorithm, not actually where they are. And a load of the information has been pulled out well, goodness me, shall we all just pack up and go home and uh, let's not, let's not bother about doing video analysis. Cause quite frankly, I can't even trust whether that's a car in an image cause it could have gone past last week. Well, the trick is not to panic because there are bits of software that can tell you where those pixels came from, where have they been moved to. And ultimately if you do a thorough analysis, What we know is, and we come back to this movement of a vehicle, we know that vehicles can't dramatically change their speed. So if we change the way that we do an analysis and forget about going, well, I want my tolerances to be really small. So if I pick a big distance and a big time, that reduces my mathematical errors, doesn't it? True. But what happens if you can check by taking a series of real incremental speeds, lots of them? And you will see if there's been a movement because you'll end up with an outlier and you'll know that that outlier if you plot an acceleration line through those well no it hasn't just suddenly pulled 3g it just hasn't done that so there's something going on here time or distance or something that's happened in the pixels and when you do that you actually end up with a sudden ability to get start parking this large average speed and start talking about trends. was it accelerating was it decelerating? Do you suddenly see when those brakes came on and um, because you might not be able to see the dive of the front of the vehicle or you're looking at the front of it and can't see the brake lights or, or whatever do, do you suddenly see where this speed line trends uh, where this trend line changes? So we want to try and actually break a little bit of convention here and and start thinking about lots of sequential speed calculations rather than a big one and that's slightly counterintuitive because typically we want to keep our errors low don't we mm. big speeds big yeah. time uh, big distances big times yep. which reduces our overall tolerance or, or or how small errors change no we can flip our thinking a bit and get a lot more information
0: that's interesting uh i like that like you said before we're kind of cheating the system a little bit, or I, I shouldn't say that, but using our skill set and recon to help us with the video analysis. So if we understand yeah. vehicle dynamics really well and braking capabilities, there's no way that that uh, Toyota Camry just pulled two G's while braking. So exactly something that. is up
1: it, with my frame timing. Exactly that. Exactly that. And there, there was for a long time, and I think we've we've uh, well and truly knocked this uh, knocked this. Uh, away now, but there was lots of times when people, uh, the old analogy that you can't do a speed calculation from uh, CCTV because of all of those problems. Issues with timing, you don't know when it's recorded, but when did it capture it? When did it actually encode it? Um, you know, you're dealing with very small periods of time and distances and macro blocks and compression algorithms and, and, and everything and and just noise about lots of reasons why you can't do it. Actually, when you get down into the real nitty gritty, you can, and it is very, very effective.
0: So a macro block analysis is what you're talking about where that will help us understand what pixels are new, what pixels are old, what pixels move.
1: Yeah. And there's a couple of tools. So so probably a bit of explanation because I've just dropped yeah. the term in there. Um so we've talked about these individual pixels that that uh, are copied. Um, and it is true that individual pixels are copied and can be copied, but typically what happens is it's blocks of pixels, um, either 16 by 16 pixels, but you can have eight, 8 by 8 squares or 4 by 4 squares, and they do different things, and we won't, won't really get into the weeds of that, but we're actually copying blocks of pixels from images and moving them together.
0: Yeah, so you have to be careful if you're an analyst and you're looking at a, a video and you think that... You're confident, really confident that that red light uh, is red, where those might be predicted pixels and there wasn't enough of a change because it doesn't consume enough of the frame to tell the system, hey, I just went from red to green. I need new pixels here. And they might just be hanging out from before in a macro block analysis would help you understand that
1: potentially you can look so that macro block analysis what we said before is we can we can use a bit of software to tell us whether something's been copied or moved or copied and moved or or, or whatever um so so yeah we can pay a bit of attention to that
0: and in the three tools that I know of that are available for that I'd love to get your take on uh what tool you're using and what tool you recommend uh and if you don't want to recommend a tool uh, I'm not going to put you in the hot seat but We have FFmpeg, we have InputAce, which was recently purchased by Axon, and then we have Amped5. And uh, I think we have, we currently have input A's, but I got my eye on Amp 5 as well, and it seems like it'd be really smart to learn FFmpeg, but I don't know if I have the the bandwidth to do that.
1: Yeah, so 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 that's the thing. Well, what what uh, what Amp does really well. So so those three products. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, FFmpeg, unless you can get some uh, GUI to to go on the front of it, you were looking at command line. And to be honest. To be honest with you, it's been a little while since I've done that. So, so no hard questions on coding FFMPEG, <laughs> uh, please, because I might I might fall from grace quite quickly. Um, but yeah, those two products you talked about, Axon or input, input ace as it was previously, and AMP5. Um, interestingly, both of them essentially drive FFmpeg in the background um so you're still using ffmpeg indirectly but with a much nicer uh, much nicer interface um as as i say i i used to use and still do i still have it uh, still use uh, axon uh, input ace um And it's still a tool that I have in my toolkit. Uh, I probably use Ampt Five uh, more now. It's got more tools. It's it's uh, it's got more things in it. But as you might expect, price points are different. Um. Yeah. So so it, it it's just whatever it's whatever fits. But both of those products, uh, yeah, no no issues with using any of those. And FFMpeg, but um with FFMpeg, you're probably going to have to spend a little bit of time hitting the books to work out how to use it. But there's loads of blogs and tutorials. You 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 would be able to do it if if you're that way inclined.
0: Uh, yeah, I started down that rabbit hole and I I pulled my parachute. I was like, I'm I'm, I'm good. I, this is not what I have the capacity for, um, right right now. And yeah, I, I guess that that brings me to a question I uh, wanted to ask. Uh, it's not the perfect segue, but it's like okay, for firms like on the private side, say, or even law enforcement. Do you recommend that everybody goes fully down the video rabbit hole just because it's so important? Or should they have a baseline understanding and then a colleague that they know that they can reach out to? How do you look at that as far as training and expertise? We can't all be experts in everything, but should we all know video enough?
1: So this is a a great question and and a tricky one to answer. Like any forensic discipline, unless you know what you're doing and i'm not talking about a really high advanced level of doing things but if some of the words that we have uh spoken in this uh in this discussion about sort of pts times or time intervals and things being quantized or macro blocks and, IP and B frames if you don't know these things i think my my advice would be find out what they are before you start doing video stuff um because if you don't know what they are, either there's a risk of you getting your analysis wrong, which is obviously the worst kind of thing. but you're also going to have a bit of a tough time giving evidence because these are fundamental concepts, and if somebody asks you a question about it and and your answer in the box is sorry what what's an iframe it's going to end pretty badly for you so so if you if you don't know what they are go and find out there there are loads of courses lever courses those, those kind of things do some reading there are some good texts on it um find out what they are. but I do feel with with the just the prevalence of video uh unless you're doing collision investigation way out in the sticks where you just don't see properties for you know twenty minutes of driving these in in any kind of metropolitan built up areas there's is only be, going to become a bigger and bigger resource um this that video so yeah i think it has to be part of the skill set in the same way i'd also say that things like um uh edr data has got to be part of a collision investigator's skill set as far as i'm concerned because there's only going to be more of it it's such a golden resource and you've got to be over it i think
0: yeah That's that I I would agree with that take as well. And I kind of followed a similar path to you just in that I did not plan on going deep down the video rabbit hole because I have enough uh, to worry about already, but it just punched me in the face. And it's like, you have to know how to do this if you want to be a competent recon now. So I remember like, you know, 2005 or so, A lot of recons threw up their hands and they said, man, this CDR stuff is complex. I got to buy that whole kit. I got to learn that stuff. I'm just going to outsource that when I need it. Uh, And I think that for the most part, 95% of the community has gone the other way and just said, well, this is so important to these analyses. I need to have that kit. I need to learn from Rick Ruth and Rusty Hay and uh, Brad Muir and be knowledgeable about this. And uh, I tend to agree that that's what you have to do with video to a certain extent. You don't have to be Mark Crouch, but you have to know the basics of video yep. analysis if you want to do some things. Exactly, And then you that. can just do the passing point analysis. You know, it's, it's not super complex if you know when the frame was written and what the health of the frame is.
1: Exactly that. And, and like any area, you can't be excellent at every discipline. You, you just can't. One of the key things of being an expert is understanding when you've met your limit, or identifying that something isn't quite right here, but you don't know what it is. That's the time to pass stuff on. Absolutely. That's the time to pass stuff on. And you certainly shouldn't feel bad or down about that at all. That That's the very epitome of being an expert is knowing when you've reached your limit. Um, but knowing when you've reached your limit, you have to have a certain level of understanding because otherwise it's just ignorance, isn't it? So you have to understand these concepts and then understand when when uh, things have gone uh, a bit beyond that. Um, so yeah, do just understand what it is. Uh, understand some of those terms. And um, yeah, and then you might find, you might find actually you can do a lot more than you thought you could. So uh,
0: the next thing I wanted to talk about is codex a, l- a little yep. bit. And if you could... First, I guess, just define what a codec is, and then how does that play into your analysis? Like, do you show up, see what the codec is, and be like, oh, okay, this codec is gonna require me to do
1: X, Y, and Z? So codec, uh, is it an acronym? Can you call it an acronym? Um, It stands for coder decoder, so decoder, codec, C-O-D-E-C. Sometimes called compressor decompressor um, because of the function that that it actually has. And what that does is uh, we've talked about this video file being uh, a digital file. Um, because light enters a camera lens, well we haven't really said that, but light enters a camera lens and it falls on the sensor and then we're digitizing that. Um, we're digitizing that uh, light on a sensor to try and get out the other end a series of ones and noughts that computers like, so they sit on their computer. But there's a convention uh, to how we can write those ones and zeros and we talked earlier a little bit about, well, we're gonna do some cool stuff with these pixels and copy some things. And without getting really into the weeds of it, that is essentially what a, what a compressor is doing, that the bit of codec is doing. It's giving the convention that this bit of uh, footage is going to be written to uh, a computer. It's gonna take this stream of light and get it into computer language. But in order to then play that back, we need to decompress it. I need to know the way in which I'm meant to read those ones and zeros back. Uh, and so I need to know how it was recorded so that I can drag all of the data back. If you think of it a bit like um, sort of, I don't know, a French to German dictionary, um If I write something down that that is in French and I want it to be in German, I use a French to German dictionary. In order to understand, because I don't speak German, I don't speak French either, but let's, let's, let's go with the analogy. In order for me to understand it again in French, I need to use the German to French translator. And we park all of the idiosyncrasies of language structure and things like that. But I need to make sure that I'm using the reverse. I need to know what it was transferred to and how I get it back again. In that process nearly always we're going to drop some detail as as we said a bit like language some of the sentence structure some of the nuance we might lose but that's okay we understand that's going to happen in the process but we need to translate it back in the way that it was written. Now sometimes if we translate it really really badly we use the wrong decoder well we just won't play it or we just get absolute gobbledygook out the other end and, and it won't play or it won't do it. Um, and we've probably seen those scenarios on our computers where we've put in a bit of CCTV footage and you get that message that says uh, you don't have the codec or codec unrecognized. Unre- what your computer is actually telling you is I don't know how to translate these strings of ones and zeros into a video file that you can see. I, I don't know how to do it. Now, that is not great for us, but it's not as dangerous as, um, as getting the slightly wrong codec. What I mean, slightly wrong codec? It's either right or wrong. Yeah, that's true. But you can have codecs that will play back some of it, mm. that could translate some of it. And on your screen, it pops up in front of you a video file that you're playing back. So you think you've got it all. But if you've ever had that situation where um, you try and play something back and you get, I don't know, a certain frame rate, and then you come up against another expert who's got exactly the same file as you and has other images. Um, if that's happened to you, that is probably, almost certainly, because you've been using not quite the right codec. And this is a problem for us, because in that process, what we know is, or we find out quite late, that we've managed to not really get all of the information out of that file. So what can we believe? Wait, did, did The bits that it did show me, are they believable? Has it messed around with any of the other data? So that making sure that we have the right codec to play back is really really important. This is where some of the forensic uh, video tools really do um, uh, earn their money because If you're using something like VLC, um, that comes with its own codecs, or installing codecs on your computer, which you don't have a lot of control over if you want to use Windows Media Player or or whichever particular flavor, it's only going to play that back as best as it can. And it's going to make a guess guess based on the file name, which codec it's gonna use. And if you go into Windows settings, you can say, oh, this file name, use this codec or use this to play this back. What if that's the wrong one? What the forensic tools do is they look at the file, they ignore essentially what the file name is, and they look through how that video file is constructed, all those ones and zeros, all that hex data as well as it gets converted from binary into hex and goes, right, I know because my libraries tell me that a file that is constructed with that structure needs this codec to play all of the footage back, and it will actually use what it's got in its own library to pull that out rather than making a guess. So this codec element, this compression, taking that light, the camera file, through all the digital processes that it does, and back again is what the codec does. So we need to be really careful when we use it. And is one of the only ways to
0: really determine if you're using the right codec to use one of these forensic tools?
1: No, there are different ways of doing it. You can play it uh, on different systems. So if you have um, sort of a a video system, this does come at a bit of a cost as well, having a separate system that is not getting loads of codecs installed on it, almost like a raw system. Do you get the same playing it back on a number of machines would be something to check. If I play it back on... Um, a couple of different players, do I get the same files? Do I get the same data? That would be the cheapest way of doing it it's not it's not infallible by by any means um but this is why something like that, a forensic tool exists because that there there is a risk um with getting that wrong.
0: and and obviously, as the codecs are developed, their goal is primarily to show high quality video at the lowest bit rate. It's like how yeah. high can, how much can we compress this? and
1: absolutely
0: still display something beautiful
1: so it begs the question well you know why don't we just have one codec you know why why don't we or, or two or three codecs well and you've hit the nail on the head with that the number of different um uh functions we need you know i in order to put something on youtube i need to get a video that could potentially be three or four gigs down to you know ideally under 100 megs to go on onto YouTube. We've got a huge compression to do, but we know we're only gonna really play that back on a screen, you know, maybe how big, what's biggest monitor people have got, like 27, 29 inch monitor. That would be wholly inappropriate if you wanted to broadcast that on your 60 inch telly, or even going to the cinema in an IMAX or whatever, you know, the codecs exist for almost for the end product. And they are wild, and they are varied. Um, so there, I can't remember. There, there's some real anecdotal uh, evidence. I don't, I don't think anybody knows, but uh, there are numbers ranging from five thousand to to twenty five thousand when you when you ask people how many codecs there are. That the the short answer to that is nobody knows, but there's lots.
0: Yeah, exactly. More than you could ever keep track of. And two of the the really popular ones that I know of anyway are uh ABC, advanced video coding, and then H V, uh i V C, I'm sorry. Uh yeah. and I think it's what it's abbreviated H.264 and then H dot two six five.
1: Yeah, you see a lot more H265 now.
0: Yeah, so that's coming out a lot now. And does that change the IBP and the motion detection? Is there a big difference between those or is have you found that they're pretty similar?
1: um yeah so the idea so, so the reason why h265 exists and it supersedes h264 uh, is to ensure that um you can compress files more you know as as uh, the cameras that we carry around in our pockets you know what what's the latest iphone 2024 20, uh, megapixel camera and it's recording at something like a video something like 12 or is it 15 megapixels that's only ever going to get more because camera manufacturers you try they sell their latest phone yeah. on how many megapixels it's got you know it's one of the things you'll see so that data is only going you're going to get more and more color information more pixels more data so in order to still be able to use it on YouTube, we're going to need to compress uh, more. So it's different; it's a different compression protocol, but it um, compresses larger files more heavily. And the, the but- your analyses
0: of motion in them seem to remain generally consistent. You go through the same process, um, and and it behaves in a similar manner, anyway.
1: Yes, because ultimately, ultimately, I have two functions. As a, as a codec or as if I'm designing a codec, what I need to do is I need to give you enough uh, information that makes you feel like you've had a really good experience and your brain can fill in all the blanks for me um, and at the same time strip out as much information or as, as much of the file size as I possibly
0: can. Yeah, it's a bit of a psychological trick, more trickery. I mean, there's a lot of trickery that we've identified so far. And that's probably not the end yeah. of it i suspect you have uh, other artifacts that can that can trick the brain um and that actually yeah. brings up something that i'm interested in for myself when i'm doing a video analysis and that's motion blur so if you're looking at a nighttime video and a car goes through and you might see you know 12 pixels the taillight spans 12 pixels and then you go to the next frame and it spans 12 pixels again when you're doing the motion analysis there what's your take on? Do you start both of them at the beginning of the tail light at the end of the tail light somewhere in between or is there a range you have to account for. So, uh,
1: uh, if uh, we need to be careful of using uh, of understanding uh, what a rolling shutter is here in the uh, different that a part of an image is captured at a different time to to another part but if we we park that argument uh for a second and and say that this is a global shutter where you're more likely to get that motion blur uh well you will will get that blur
0: yeah where the whole shutter is going to open at once and it's all going to close at once yeah
1: yeah um which is how you get blur in in the uh generally um what you want to be doing in that case as a general rule is is picking the same part because you know that the first part of the tail light was uh, when the exposure first started. Uh, It doesn't actually have a physical aperture, but when the sensor started recording and the end of it was when the sensor shut off. So as long as you're using the same part, either the the beginning part of the exposure or the end part of the exposure, you should generally be okay. What you wouldn't want to be doing is mixing those two. Yeah, you wouldn't want to mix the two because the the time interval is different yeah because you'd be accounting for a frame rate plus an exposure
0: that was a selfish question because i see that all the time and that's currently what my thought on that was but i'm I'm glad to hear yeah. it uh corroborated by somebody more expert in video analysis than me
1: but but again you know i don't i don't think that um i don't you know we're, we're assuming that that's not done sort of disingenuously it's not done deliberately um to try and get the speed of the vehicle up or you know bring the gap closer you can reduce right. the speed um it, it's just it's it's kind of a lack of understanding and it comes back to the bit we said before it's like if, if you're not really happy with the concepts or you don't really understand how uh, an image is captured in its basic sense you know there's an exposure however that's done you know and, and and there's a fixed period of time that the sense is capturing light well you can easily fall into those traps not 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 deliberately trying to be wrong but you go like oh i can see a really nice line here and a really nice line here and you just make that mistake without without realizing yeah uh
0: and one thing i wanted to we, we mentioned this before recording and it's something that we're seeing a ton of right now is uh law enforcement officers specifically and i understand why they do it because it's the easiest thing to do they show up to the uh building the business that has the video and they don't have a usb drive they don't know how to export the video whatever it is they whip out their iphone video the video we that's what we get and then two years later we get the case and it's like well of course that data is not still on that surveillance system so this is what we have one is that the best way to record video uh and then two what do we do if that's what we get
1: so No, that's absolutely not the best way. And um, I would consider that to be the very, very last resort. If you can't do anything else, well, it's better to get that than nothing, sure, but you're very much so in that territory. You know, this is your your last option if you've exhausted everything else, including seizing the video system. I I know that that causes difficulties in the UK as it does uh, in America, but you know, I'd even put that above that choice. If you don't know how to download it, okay, grab it on playback, but then make sure that somebody, uh, by recording it that way, just to get the initial grab, um, but then send somebody who does know what they're doing to it. Don't take that as your evidential recording. I've captured the CCTV. You need to think of that as being you haven't done any of that. It'd be in the same way that you would, you know, you wouldn't take, um, you know, you wouldn't use your, um, your, your, body camera to record some fingerprints that you saw at the side of a murder scene in blood you wouldn't go yep i've got those fingerprints all all done you just wouldn't do it it's crazy but you might go well i'm just going to quickly capture it now and then send somebody you could you know that's okay but you'd never sit there and go yep got them and the reason why you don't want to do that there's so much information hidden behind um a a video file in the metadata all that stuff so the bit that you see on the screen is only really part of the video file so we need to make sure when we're capturing it we capture it all also when we've got that video file we can do some cool tips and Tricks with it to make it uh, more readily viewable because we've actually recorded those pixel values and we can, we can enhance them in various different ways, which isn't for now, but um, that allows us to do that. Thirdly, and finally, we've talked about how um, this, uh, these compression uh, algorithms, these predictions of frames, these I and B frames and codecs and macro blocks, and we've thrown a load of technical terms around, we can work backwards from those, generally speaking, uh, if we've got the original file, because we can then interrogate it to see where those pixels have moved. If you then record over the top of it, if we run any kind of analysis, all we're seeing is what your body camera did to that footage we're not seeing what the camera did to the incident footage and you've just completely obliterated any potential we had to go and work out what happens at the scene so it is my biggest bugbear um so you've you've kind of hit on it um should you do it uh only if your other option is uh i'm never going to get this footage yeah
0: and and I'm with you. It's one of my uh, big pet peeves as well. We we see it a lot. I have a really big case right now where that's all I have, you know. And I reached out to the owner of the system, but of course, it's two years later, and he's like, "I don't have it. This is this is what you get." And it seems to me that photogrammetrically speaking, we're we're now looking at two fields of distortion that we're going to have to correct for. I can do that, depending on how much control I have. So I could probably figure out positions, you know, where is one vehicle with respect to the other vehicle, but frame timing, man, am I ever gonna be able to get frame timing accurately pinned? Uh, what's your take? Is there anything you can do there or is, speed, is a speed analysis just not feasible at that point?
1: Uh, it gets very difficult. Um, I have had some success, um, generally speaking, if your secondary recording device, is recording at a much higher frame rate about three to one uh, much higher frame rate than the incident footage than the original uh, on playback then you probably have enough to backwards engineer it but to to be honest we, we shouldn't be in the situation where we're doing that because that is I mean if you want to answer some questions in the box this is a brilliant way of doing it if you want to spend an hour answering questions just on timing, you know, use your mobile phone to record everything. Um, but, but we don't want to do that. We really don't want to do that. And actually you don't know whether you can do anything with it until you've really spent a lot of time working on it. Um, so the short answer to that is, can you do anything with it? Uh, Sometimes if you get like,
0: yeah, so the biggest thing that we can do is just educate the community and let them know, that that's bad for for us it's bad for anybody trying to analyze the collision and the best thing they can do is find somebody who can download or poke your way through i mean it's in my experience it's generally not that hard with the native surveillance system to figure out how to export something maybe you're not exporting the best thing but at least you're exporting something that is native to the system
1: it it will still be better than recording it with a with a mobile device um, depending on the nature of the incident you know if you're dealing with somebody's death well then you do really want to be sending the specialists to it it's it's what they do you know you, you wouldn't send you know Barbara from the bakery to do you know blood pattern analysis so you know why you, you need to send the right people to it when when you can um, so yeah you can go through it and and i I have to be slightly careful because somebody will always buck the trend you you have to go some to delete footage properly properly delete it because Typically you have to go through two menus to delete something. That being said, there will always be somebody that will manage to delete something of, of footage, but the, the general rule is we don't want to be taking video of video. If you are, if you've been trained uh, and have the knowledge to get it yourself, do that, uh, if you don't feel comfortable doing that for whatever reason, get somebody you can, because video of video is just an utter nightmare.
0: I think that's yeah important for everybody to hear. All right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk. We've already covered the future and how things have evolved a little bit. We're going to go into like what I call a speed round and, and I get made fun of for it because nothing I do is that speedy when it comes to having a conversation with somebody like you. Um, but we'll, we'll start talking about the, uh, kind of the future of video analysis and to kind of put that into context a little bit and to start our brains heading down that path how has you, how have your analyses changed over the past 15 years when you started looking at video to now
1: yeah so so software uh, i think and 3d modeling ha- has been the real change there there was lots of stuff that i used to do about reattending the scene and repositioning things or looking for lines on a road surface or physical features um 3d laser scanning uh, being able to convert that 2d picture which is cctv a 2d representation of the 3d world and back into 3d has been the biggest change and is brilliant yeah
0: that's that's true for me as well and i i've already voiced uh my my uh love of photogrammetry using point clouds it's it just it tickles my fancy i i know that i have it right when everything lines up great visual feedback there um so what are you most excited about in the field of video analysis right now as far as uh, development or capabilities that you didn't have before?
1: Yeah, so so I think we're, we're on this um, ever-increasing uh, line of quality, um, better resolution, um, better time intervals. So uh, we're going to be able to see more and more and more. And what I'm actually most excited about is what we can use uh, the video four which isn't just about calculating vehicle speeds things like um, you know doing more work there's already low type like jeff Matar, for example in terms of human factors we, we might be able to explore even more in terms of perception response times because we can see how people respond to various different things so the data grab that that's going to lead to and understanding driver behaviors i think i think will just continue to grow
0: yeah, I'm I'm excited about that too. And one of the things that I'm hoping to do is perform naturalistic studies of motorcycle braking rates on their way into impact, because that's something that's a big gap in the literature right now. And now with this very reliable video out there and, cal- and EDRs on Kawasaki. I was just given uh, a presentation in SoCal uh, yesterday and one of the officers came up to me at the end of the presentation. He said, I have uh, Kawasaki data, so edR data from this motorcycle and I also have great video of it and I was like well that's a perfect uh, uh, study to put into a paper if we can accumulate 20 of those cases where we can very confidently establish the braking rate of the motorcycle on the way into impact now we have the best data set available so uh, i I agree I'm totally excited about that
1: we, we know a few bits and pieces if you know if they if they look out the front wheel we know that kind of thing but but what do riders actually do? When they don't lock out the front because they're, they're trying to balance it, you know how 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 does that look? Is it point five? Is it point six? Do do we know? Is you, you, we might know that the front wheel scrubbing uh, rather than sliding before we go down the ABS. So, but but what what are they actually doing? Why are they doing it? And does everybody hold it at that point? Or it, yeah yeah absolutely. Any, any of those kind of things. Yeah,
0: it's a big gap in the literature right now where we have a lot of controlled testing. We don't have a lot of naturalistic testing. The naturalistic data that we do have is very strange in that it's suggesting that riders are braking at like 0.35 to 0.4 g's on their way to impact and that's mm. it's not consistent with what I'm seeing in my casework. So there's there's a lot more work to be done there on that front just kind of a call to the community if you're listening to this and you have uh Kawasaki EDR data or really good video of a motorcycle pre-impact that we could use to calculate pre-impact braking rates. Uh, and you're able to share it. Please shoot me an email. I'd like to incorporate it into uh, an upcoming paper. And that brings me actually perfectly to my next question:
1: uh,
0: Are there any gaps in the literature with respect to video analysis that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. So um, it's going to sound ever so slightly uh, so, sort of self self infatuating, isn't it? But that that's what we're trying to write. There's there's lots of stuff that take. Uh, forensic video analysis for um, various different uh, forensic disciplines, and, and they're great. Or there's loads of things that are um, out there for um, you know understanding how video works in computers and cameras and things. What we don't have a lot of is um, how we can then apply that video to collision investigators and those kind of things. And and you know the more people that that join and write and uh, do papers on this stuff, uh, because it's lonely to be out here on your own sometimes. You know, the the more people that get uh, involved in that in in our industry will be better.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree. Like I was saying before, there's not a lot of collision reconstructionists that uh, at least publicly do a lot of work with video analysis and make that information available. So I, I agree. I'd love to see it. And that's why I was uh, ecstatic to see that your class exists. And I'm really looking forward to sitting down and, and taking that. Um, so for those listening, hopefully in 2023, I don't know, Mark, if we're going to make that happen, but probably 2023, we're going to hope to get Mark to Southern California for
1: a, a five-day uh, live class. I only come out when it's sunny.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, you should be good because we just used up all the rain that must exist in Southern California the past three months. I don't know how it's still cold and rainy here, Um, but I I feel like I'm in Seattle. Uh, Are there any tools that are in your current kit or in a lot of reconstructionist video analyst kit uh, now that you don't think will be necessary in five to 10 years or won't be there?
1: Yeah, I I think the um, not necessarily a piece of kit, but but the need to re-attend a scene um, to position objects, or I mean, there might be the very rare occasion, but but to go back or, or physically walk down the road taking meter measurements and seeing with a, a pole what a meter looks like, or trying to position a car back, I, I think that will go, um, and we're probably not a million miles away from that going pretty soon. Um, just because of the things that that three D laser scanning brings to the party, or or any kind of photogrammetry, actually, in the, in that sense, uh, any kind of point cloud generation. Yeah,
0: how ubiquitous are laser scanners over there right now for law enforcement and private?
1: Yeah, so nearly every uh, private, uh, sorry, nearly every police force has one. In fact, I think they probably all do. Um, have those uh, and deploy those at scenes although there are still total stations being used quite regularly um, which is a bit of a shame because I think the laser scanner will unless you've got a, a road surface that's covered in snow or you know is, is under two inches of water a laser scanner is pretty much going to get you more information in those, in those uh, circumstances and um, so really common for police uh, in the private practice, not so much. There are probably only a few of us that have uh, TLS uh, solutions, um, but things like um, uh, photogrammetry as in as in creating a point cloud from um, a series of photographs is becoming more common um, as our sort of LiDAR based uh, iPhone type solutions. Um, and, but, but anyway, I mean, there there are various papers on um, accuracies of those, and uh, of course, a really expensive TLS uh, will win every time. But the other ones are, are probably are probably pretty good for for our practice. So have a look at some of those uh, things because because they are usable and they do work.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that you can get yourself a pretty reasonably price drone and pair it up with something like reality capture from epic and yeah. make a really nice point cloud and a really nice ortho if you have all the money in the world Pix 4d does a great job too or more money i should say um if you have all the money in the world i guess you're buying a like a Leica rtc or a regal or something but yeah um yeah that's uh and then the inverse of that question uh what tool do you think will be in everybody's kit in five to ten years that they might not necessarily have now
1: yeah i think i think that's the answer i, I think it will be a way of generating a point cloud and um uh, because it is over here just catching on people using sort of gopros on poles or, or drones or or whatever yeah i think i would be fairly uh, confident that that would be a um in in, in everybody's uh, in in everybody's toolkit in the next well five years
0: and it's just getting easier and easier. I mean, I had a, a conversation with Anthony Cornetto uh, a couple of days back, and he's a big photogrammetry 3D modeling guy. And he's pulling out the stereo camera assembly, an array that's just in one assembly. And you could just walk around and use that as a photogrammetry tool to map anything. It's a stereoscopic sort of. Exactly. And it seems like we're not far. I mean, if you put two of those on the outskirts of your pickup truck, well, I know you don't have a lot of pickup trucks there, but... In America, that's all we do, pickup trucks everywhere. But, you know, they're like eight feet wide. You drive down a lane and you have a couple cameras on the sides of the windshield. And, like, can we create a great point cloud just from that? Just drive through real quickly? If you're at 200 frames a second or something, which is not uh, too far-fetched now with the GoPros, uh, it it seems possible. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops if you could just drive down the roadway and map everything out. Yeah. Not put yourself yep. in harm's way. Um, what so AI, obviously a hot topic right now with Chat GPT and all that, it hasn't really been very practical until recently, it doesn't seem, but video analysis seems like a spot where AI could really kind of dig in and start analyzing some of those patterns you were talking about earlier with frame rates and macro block analysis, which I guess already could be perceived as some sort of AI. But how do you see AI? affecting video analysis, if at all?
1: Yeah, I, this, this is a tricky one because obviously the, uh, we're never going to stop AI rolling out, um, but there's a number of different papers. It, it's almost like it's split the forensic community, hasn't it, AI, they, they, you, you seem to have to be in one camp or the other that, that this is totally inappropriate to allow a computer to do a forensic investigation or uh, this is going to change the world. And um, I think there will be areas where it will be very useful in uh, video analysis. I, I, I think calculating a vehicle speed will be uh, still Uh, not AI, as in it won't be computer learned. It may well be computer vision, as in you give it some dimensions of the road and it calculates the speed from the pixel values, but that's not AI because it's not learning. I think things like um, understanding frame rates of cameras, building that database of this, I know what this camera is, and I can then predict its frame rate from all of the other information that we've got from cameras of its type. Um, things like vehicle ID perhaps, it's already rolling in in terms of facial ID, another hot topic, um, but those kind of things for fail to stop collisions, uh, hit and runs where where cars flee the scene and you've got to ID a vehicle, I think probably there, um, but nobody really knows. So we don't quite know what's gonna happen with AI, but video does seem to be areas where it where it would play digital data is what it loves and video is digital data
0: yeah that's a really cool idea like you're saying with vehicle identification and hit and runs you you it's kind of like a captcha you know like if you could have a human say oh that's a 1988 Oldsmobile," and you do that enough times and the computer is like okay i know what they look like now um, and that would be huge. Those are really tragic cases um, when somebody you know is a pedestrian's hit or something, and they, they flee the scene and nobody ever knows who did it. it's uh, it's brutal. so
1: and and it also fills into sort of the brief, you know you need something done very quickly. that that's why AI works, isn't it? Because you need to do something much, much quicker than a human would ever do it. and and I think that fits because you've got to trace that vehicle as quickly as you can. Um, so that, that for me, I, I, am probably lean towards that way, but we're all guessing it's going to be an exciting time.
0: Yeah, exactly. Speaking of guessing, the next question is based on autonomous vehicles. And it's funny if you go back in history and look at, uh, futurists predictions about when autonomous vehicles are going to take over, everybody's been extremely wrong so far. And it's been a much more challenging project than people estimated it would be. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a question specifically about autonomous vehicles in video. I know you're already talking about every vehicle, like, you know, you get a Tesla and it's got, I don't know, five or six cameras on there. Can we get access to that? Sometimes if the driver has a USB in there and they have the dash cam feature activated, we can. What, how do you see that playing out? Like in, in 10 years, are we gonna have access to all of that video from every ve- every vehicle that has them?
1: Yeah, so so I think this is a very, very similar uh, argument to uh, EDRs that, that we were talking about earlier. There is data on that vehicle that would be helpful. Sure, we need to analyze it. Sure, we need to be careful with it. But it's data on a vehicle that could help dramatically. Um, and i think there has to be there just has to be some um work done around getting hold of that data and i think edr has already set the precedent to that yes okay there probably be some things about well it captures people's faces and and it and it presents a slightly different sort of personal data element but that that for me is just so analogous to uh edr data that that it's got to hasn't it yeah
0: i i I tend to agree i i really hope it does because there's some questions you just can't answer and if that data is you know without information like that and if that data is sitting there and preventing us from performing a complete analysis it seems uh tragic
1: the only the only thing that i've seen i have seen camera from uh tesla um is that the timing issue is just all over the place and i think there's a distinction here um, I think, as we said about the difference between uh, a camera used for the autonomous function and a camera used for um, uh, and a camera used to capture the the outside world in, in, a, in a traditional camera sense. And, you know, if it's being used as part of the vehicle system, um, whether that sits on conventional CAN bus or something like a Tesla has a, has a different communication protocol for the autonomous function um well then the usual issues play i think with well what's can bus doing what are we doing with timing what what is the signal that's going around you know is there a can high can low for these kind of things does it prioritize data on it you know loads of questions but a very exciting time
0: and do you think there's going to be any other sources of video that pop up in the next decade that we haven't really put our finger on
1: the only thing that could potentially do that would be some kind of um aerial surveillance, I think, where maybe drones are permanently in the sky. Personally, I think that's a little bit too sci-fi for uh, for uh, the actual uh, likelihood. More and more cameras, more and more people capturing things on camera phones, more and more uh, dash cameras, cameras on vehicles. So I think that's the way that it would go. Um, but the the only gap, I think, would be some kind of aerial, aerial view. But we'll see we see
0: yeah exactly one of the things that i always wonder is uh like you know all the satellite imagery we have now is there, is there come a point when they're all capturing video and we could watch any intersection at any time historically or currently that would be nuts
1: that would be uh probably not in my lifetime but you know I'd, i might i might I might eat my words
0: there yeah, will probably all be uh killed off by AI by then if, <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, so in in 15 years from now, we're looking at 2038. Um, what do you think a, a typical video analysis is going to look like? Is it gonna be pretty much what it is now or are there gonna be a lot, uh, di- are there gonna be different tools, different techniques? Uh, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think I think I sort of, sort of alluded to it slightly earlier on the AI question. I, I think machine vision I think will help. I I think we will give it the parameters as in the road sizes um, and then effectively let it crack on, calculate the pixel changes, the pixel displacements, um, and it will do it without um, our involvement. I I think that that is coming. Um, Yeah, there'd be various controls like like anything that that automates. But yeah, machine vision, I think, for speed calculations yeah
0: so the human comes in we provide the judgment we provide the some of the foundational information and it cranks through and does all the work for us and saves us the 40 hours or whatever we're spending right now performing those analyses i i would love that you know i i'm happy to spend time to use my judgment and experience and help a case along but the tedious repetitive work i would love to pass that off to a machine um well we yeah so we go in two and a half hours uh wanted to start to wrap things up uh, I really appreciate you taking the time especially I know what is it's pretty late for you there right now I think it's, it's gonna be nine o'clock.
1: uh quarter past nine. O'clock?
0: yeah that's I couldn't tell you, you look bright-eyed and, bu- <laughs> and Bushy-tailed um, so where do people uh, find you if they wanna reach out? What's the best way to follow you and see what you're up to?
1: Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, FCIR, we're on LinkedIn as the full name, Forensic Collision Investigation and Reconstruction Limited. Um, our website, www.fcir.co.uk. Um, or just reach out uh, i'm normally i'm normally around talking at something or other people can't get rid of me at the moment it's great uh the um, um but yeah <laughs> i just just ask questions as you've probably um as you've probably uh, gathered through this this uh podcast that, that i love talking about video in fact you can't get me to stop my wife thinks I'm great fun at dinner parties. Um, but yeah. but yeah, no, a- always happy to talk. If there are questions, things you come across, anything that's slightly odd, something that you need a bit of a steer on, please, please reach out.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. And then this is the book. I have a copy here at the office. And then uh, Mark is publishing the second edition. Yeah. So I'm going to have to get my hands on that and see uh, what else has been updated other than what we discussed. Uh, but thanks again, Mark hey everyone this is lou again one more thing before you take off and that is my weekly bite sized email to the point would you enjoy getting an email from me every friday discussing a single tool paper method or update in the community past topics have included toyota's vehicle control history including a coverage chart adas that's advanced driver assistance systems tesla vehicle data reports free video analysis tools and handheld scanners if that sounds fun and useful Head to lightpointdata.com slash to the point to get the very next one.